Hey, thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Kristen. This is Rational in Portland, where we say everything you can't say in Portland. Today, we are revisiting our Neighborhood Spotlight series in Portland in regard to the homeless crisis. We are back in Lentz. We're going to hear updates about what is going on in the Lentz neighborhood. And we are going to hear from the Lentz Neighborhood Livability Association leaders, David Potts and Char Penny. We heard before from the Lentz Neighborhood Livability Association members, Todd Littlefield and Juanita Swartwood, who spoke so highly of David and Char, who are the people who actually started the Lentz Neighborhood Livability Association. Welcome, David and Char. I know Juanita still has a house in Lentz. Char and Dave are different in the sense that they are still completely devoted and dedicated to the Lentz Neighborhood Livability Association, but no longer live in in Lentz. And um, Char, let's start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about how the LNLA got started and what, what you and Dave's role is? Are you officers of the nonprofit? I'm, I'm the secretary treasurer. David is the president. We started the LNLA out of frustration with the official city-sanctioned neighborhood association. We wanted to be boots on the ground and actually help the neighbors. The LNLA is different in that aspect because the LNA, the Lentz Neighborhood Association, really just promotes the city's agenda. So if the city comes in and says they are doing this, they'll go yay, 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 and they'll go along with us. Us on the other hand, we advocate with the neighborhood to see what the neighborhood wants, and then we go with what they want. The neighborhood association, the official one, will only push the agenda of what the city is wanting them to do. And that's what they were not meant to do. They were originally set up for land use issues, to have a voice for the neighborhood with the city. Now it's the other way around. It's the city tells them what they're doing, and they push that agenda on the neighborhood instead of listening to what the neighbors want. Why do you think that is? Is money, there somebody who money, works? Money. They want money from the city. Yes. Yeah. Yes. They are so, first in line for grants. They were getting a yearly stipend up until maybe two years ago. The Neighborhood Association was getting like $1,500, not much, a year from the city. For the NA. And so, no, it, it comes down to money. If they go along with what the city's agenda is, they are first in line for those city grants, those county grants, whatever grants are out there. They are considered first and foremost to be a voice for the neighborhood. But then they're beholden to the city's agenda, right? They can't set their own agenda? Basically, yeah. They'll bring in city employees. They'll bring in people with BDS or whoever. But when those people come in, the neighbors, the people who attend the meetings, don't have a voice. 
they basically sit there and listen to what the city is going to put down in their neighborhood without getting to actually say, this isn't what I want. It has to do with the flow of information because originally, like back in Bud Clark's day when the neighborhood associations were created, it was a, a means of citizen involvement with the city government. And it was a great, great thing back then. But over the years, it has uh, become that the city has discovered that they can use the neighborhood associations as a mouthpiece for city policy. And so now it's, uh, they, the city has a plan and the, the neighborhood associations, in Lenses particularly, I can't speak really for every neighborhood association, but in Lentz, um, the neighborhood association is a, they're a spokesperson for whatever the city's current policy is. That's kind of why we formed, because we had ideas and we were, I don't know, too old, not, not the right demographic, but uh, the neighborhood association wasn't interested in us or what we had, what our opinions were, and so we formed our own group and uh, have never taken money from the city, and consequently it, it frees us up to, to actually represent the neighborhood rather than the city. So does that mean that the LNA is staffed with people who tend to, and, and I'm not talking about the neighbors, but the staff of the LNA, the Lentz Neighborhood Association, is, is staffed with people who just happen to believe in what the city's agenda is, I guess, uh, however fortuitously for the city? I mean, right, the money that you get from the city is only good if you are doing what the city wants you to do with it. And so they must be true believers in regard to what the city wants them to do? I don't know if they're true believers personally, but they will jump in both feet with their agenda. And I, I, in the past, I know a lot of the people that got on the LNA board were looking to advance their career and get jobs with the city. And I think a lot of it was that. So they, they play that favor to get those jobs because a lot of the people that have been on the board are either unemployed or underemployed. And so I really think their agenda was self-serving to get forward, you know, advance themselves. Because right now we have a realtor, we had someone that was running an Airbnb we have a homeless advocate, and the other two have no interest in their, their own agenda. And I think these other three people have an agenda. And I know in the past, the board prior, a lot of them were city employees. They worked for the city in some capacity. City or metro. So how does that, I don't know how that advances the neighborhood when you get people who have their own agenda. And I think that's a lot of the problem. And so, who is it that actually formed the LNLA? Was it the two of you, or yes. was it a group? It was us. And how did you decide? I mean, knowing that the neighborhood association isn't representative of your views is one thing, but what was the impetus, or what do you think it was about the two of you that made you go, 
we're going to do something about this. Well, we had a grievance against the LNA. We went through all the process, which I guess the East Portland Neighborhood Office really didn't have a process to address grievances when you had one with your neighborhood association. So we went through the whole process, found out at the end nothing was going to be done. And at the time, Paul Leisner and Richard Salinas... Uh, no, uh, Victor Salinas. Victor Salinas was in charge of the neighborhood, neighborhood coalition. And they basically told us to our face, if you don't like what you see with your neighborhood association, form your own. So that's what we did. It took us a month to get all the paperwork together to be a nonprofit. File our paperwork with the IRS to become a 501c3. And um, it really isn't that hard. We've done paperwork our whole careers up, up, till, up until we retired. And uh, Sue Gray, we met her at uh, East Portland. East. We met him at the office, East Portland Neighborhood Office. Yeah, she came that, in to talk to us. Yeah, she came in to talk to us, and she was very impressed. She said, you did all this in 30 days, and it wasn't that big a deal. When, and who are you and referring I, to? Who is this person? She is the former head of uh, ONI. ONI, Office of Neighborhood Involvement. Well, what is the difference between the Office of Neighborhood Involvement and the Office of Civic Life? That was the prior name. Okay. And when I renamed it itself, when they renamed themselves, and really, um, it was an. I I think there was a concerted effort at that at back in the time when Sue Gray was there and uh, Chloe Udaley was oversaw it that they they wanted to move away from neighborhood associations at all and turn them into. Uh, I don't know, more affinity groups rather than geographical groups. Yeah, and actually, if you look at the Office of Civic Life website, it's transparent about that. Oh, it yeah. says it's neighborhood associations and affinity groups. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's no reason there can't be both, but I, I think those two really, they their goal was to do away with neighborhood associations altogether. So I'm glad we didn't spend a lot of energy on trying to change the Lentz Neighborhood Association because it was never going to happen and it might not have mattered anyway if, if things had gone the way they intended, which was to dissolve the neighborhood associations. And so is the Lentz Neighborhood Association still up and running? It was my understanding that it's kind of gone kaput. It, well, uh, right before the, the last election in September of... Last year. Was it last year or the year before? The, the, member, the members of the board at that time all resigned right prior to the election, so they couldn't even hold an election. There are, there are no officers to, to make decisions, and, and they've, uh, they've only just recently got it up and running again. I think they've had a couple of monthly meetings since uh, the new board got in place. Why do you think they sort of disintegrated? Um, <laughs> Is it because they didn't have the neighborhood backing? No. No, no it, was, it was personal. It was the folks on the board, really, that the chair of the board had other... 
it, it was there. There were issues between board members, and and also the money was all gone because at the time we were uh, trying to be involved with the neighborhood association, they had fourteen thousand dollars in their account, and uh, through through the previous two boards, both of which had the, the same chair, they managed to spend all that money on pet projects, and the money was down to a couple thousand, and she started her own non nonprofit and, uh, and was kind of done with it. That's surprising, given that they were getting all this, the whole idea was to get this money from the city, and then they were spending it all. It was, it was almost like they couldn't get enough. For all the projects, probably, and my suspicion is that I, I really think she thought that uh, if if she could force the neighborhood association to dissolve, that that her group could uh, take their place. And there's no process in that in city code, so it was never going to happen. People at various times had said, "Well, you guys should just become the neighborhood association." We can't, we're, and we really don't want to because it would. We have the freedom to say whatever we want to say. Our 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 members can say what they want to say, as long as they don't attack other people. Um, it's we have. We want to be the voice of Lance, not not the the. Oh, not the megaphone for whatever current city policy is and current city directions. Now, this kind of dovetails into your personal story, right? Because you both have moved out of the city. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that was, my understanding is that was due to city politics. It wasn't due to the neighborhood of Lentz or yeah. your feeling that Lentz was not livable anymore. No, because the, the part, of, especially the part of Lentz we lived in as a, as a very nice neighborhood on, on Mount Scott, really just on the, the edge of the city, just within the city limits. And... Although we're impacted by things going on in Lentz, it's not to the degree that the folks are down in the kind of the, the flatlands of Lentz. And, uh, and we, have, we both have long roots in Lentz. We, Char bought the house in 80, 86. 86, and I, I joined her there in 1987. And it, it was painful to leave Lentz but, and leave Portland but our, it became clear that the city has no intention, that they have no interest in livability or safety for anyone, whether housed or unhoused. And uh, it, it got to the point that <laughs> a year ago, Char made the comment, she said, I don't care what you do, I'm leaving, leaving Portland. You can come with me or you can stay in it. But, you know, the obvious, the choice was obvious for me. And so we bought a house in Malala and then sold our house here in Portland. And but we're, we are committed to Lentz and to running this organization and trying to, trying to help all the people who don't have the ability to move elsewhere. When you talk about the issues with the city, and, and the way in which the city refuses to be committed to livability and safety. Obviously, 
you must not think that was always true because you bought this house in, in what did Dave, David say, 86, Sharp? 86, yeah. When, when did you see the livability and the safety begin to disintegrate? Probably when Hales was in office and they made the Springwater Corridor the largest homeless camp in, in, the, the, in, the, in the country. But I want to dovetail back because when we first started our organization, the LNLA, we were attacked not only by descending voices, but also the city. We would put things on our Facebook page, which I thought was interesting that they were watching us so closely that at one point we put a joke up on our page, and I preface it as a joke. We were not endorsing this behavior, but I just thought it was funny. And we got a call from the, the Office of Neighborhood Involvement saying they were no longer going to support us. We could no longer borrow any of their video equipment or anything from their office. And then there was another time a member put a picture up on our page and we were called by Robert King downtown telling us, I mean, this is people from the city telling us they aren't going to support us yet when the Neighborhood Association did things like this. They were totally behind them. And I thought it was funny. We were just a small nonprofit, but they were watching everything we did. They, I don't know what they thought we were up to, but it was funny, out of all the Facebook pages in the world, they were paying particular attention to ours. And I hate to get off the subject of what we were talking about, but that's politics, in my opinion. In, in what way? Like, what do you think that's about? Is that about the failure to absorb criticism and course correct? I think so. I mean, it wasn't even criticism towards us. The first, po the first post, which was a very popular meme at the time, it was it was a person holding a handgun. Actually, saying, it was a picture of a handgun just pointing towards the viewer, saying, "If you're found here to if you're found um, here tonight, you will be found here tomorrow." And that that was interpreted by the neighborhood association that we were trying to tell people not to come to their voting to their election. Election. It had nothing to do with the neighborhood association. Nothing at all. They, they even went so far as to doctor the, the posts, the order of the posts in Facebook to make it appear as if that one came right underneath the LNA uh, election. Their announcement of their election. And it had nothing to do with their election because no. their election wasn't on our Facebook page. Yeah. <laughs> but no, that's why we met with Supre with, with the Office of Neighborhood Involvement mm -hmm. because she came in to say, because. Uh, Victor Salinas told us we were we were basically not we weren't to receive any kind of support, support from them for six months because of that post. And Sue Ray came in and met with us to let us know that, that was wrong, that they didn't have the right to do that because of our Facebook page. And I think Victor Salinas may have lost his job over that decision of his. He worked, he was the director of the 
Office of Neighborhood Involvement. The East Portland office. Yeah, yeah. East Portland Neighborhood Office. But it, it was so political that, that I felt that they were so closely watching what we were putting on our Facebook page, but not watching their own neighborhood association page. And there was a point where there was another Facebook page that was calling out people in the neighborhood is being mentally incapacitated and categorizing people in the Lentz neighborhood with these mental illnesses. Now, this was another page that was well known and basically used by the Neighborhood Association is the official neighborhood Facebook page. And they were putting stuff like that on their page, but they were never called out for it. And Not that we know of, but I they, were, I, they were certainly never sanctioned. For no, no, but it, it was just kind of interesting to me, the, the politics just, and yeah. <laughs> Do you think they were never called out because they were committed to towing the city line, so the city wasn't concerned with monitoring their Facebook this, page? This, well, it, it may have been that they towed the city line, but the fact that they were calling neighbors out in the neighborhood as being mentally ill yeah. and naming them by name and basically categorizing them, I would not think that would be something the city would want out there under their name. But, you know, maybe they thought that, because po the city posted on their Facebook page. The city would post directly to their Facebook page. So they were definitely sanctioned by the city, that particular page, but I... I don't know. I mean, they, I don't know. I just know they watched our page, and I think they still do watch our page very closely. Why do you think they still watch it? Afraid of what we might say about them. <laughs> and we do say a lot about them. <laughs> and why are you so committed to this issue of safety and livability in Portland and particularly in the Lentz neighborhood, if you no longer live in Portland nor Lentz? Because we have a lot of friends there. We have our lives, I mean, what is it? How many years did we live there? Over 30 years we lived in that neighborhood and have seen the downturn of the safety and livability. And we feel for those neighbors that are still there. I mean, we're trying to advocate, like the Safe Rest Village that Dan Ryan is putting in Lentz, we're trying to advocate for the neighbors to give them a voice, because the Neighborhood Association is not going to give them that voice. And so we're trying our best to still be there to give them a voice with, city, with the city, because there's no other organization out there that is doing that for them. But couldn't you theoretically hand the reins over to somebody else who's currently on the LNLA? I would gladly hand the reins over. If anyone wants to step up and take this on, we would gladly hand the reins over. No, I have no problem with that. If anyone out there hears me, please let us know. If you <laughs> want the LNLA, it is all yours. And, and we keep asking because we never really intended to be lifetime officers. And uh, periodically we ask, do you want to have an election to elect new board members? Because we're totally behind that. And no, no, we like things just the way they are is what we hear from our membership. It's almost like you, you all have done too great of a job. 
Because when I talk to people or when I got messages after Juanita and Todd's Lentz episode, all the comments were about the two of you and the good work the two of you were doing. And it, it's almost it's almost like people can't imagine doing the kinds of impactful work that, that you're doing in the way that you're doing it themselves. They can't imagine somebody else doing it. It's something, what do, what do you think about, what do you think it is about you two that enables you to just be so darn effective? I'm very organized and I have a lot of time on my hands and it takes a lot of time to run this. Char is the heart of the organization. So, and we have a list of speakers because Todd said you should mention the number of, and this is a small list. Yeah, I'm looking at an enormous, <laughs> do you mind if I take a look at that? I, I'm taking a look at a, frankly, enormous list of speakers. This takes up, this list of speakers takes up, it's single spaced, relatively small font. Uh, it takes up most of the page. It's just, and this is who you have currently scheduled. No, those are those are past speakers. These are yes. past speakers. Yeah. I mean, this is just incredible. It's everybody from uh, PPB Commander Erica Hurley to the Deputy Chief Chris Davis to Multnomah County Sheriff's Office. We've got TriMet Director of Security. We've got Prosper Portland Director, Commissioner Dan Ryan, County Commissioner Myron, County Commissioner Vega Peterson. Those two are in a election race right now for the general election for county chair. We've got Bybee Lakes, Portland Homeless Family Solutions. I mean, this is just a Union Gospel Mission, Central City Concern, One Point of Contact, Rapid Response. <laughs> it's just amazing the... Not, not only the oh, candidate forums, Mingus Maps, it's not only amazing the amount of names on the page, but what's amazing to me is the, the wide range of, um, for better word, ideologies, opinions, uh, roles served. Because you not only have homeless advocates, you've got You've got PPB and you've got, you know, Jessica Vega-Peterson is widely known to be relatively far left. Sharon Myron is known to be more center left. I mean, it's you're really listening to everybody. This isn't you're not staging people that you think will only agree with the LNLA. You're interested, it seems, in a variety of opinions. We are, and, and our, it goes along with our, what our mission has been since the beginning, which is to serve, engage, and inform the citizens of Lance. And a lot of our choices and who the speakers are is based on input from the group. Who would you like to have at a meeting? And Char is always open to, Char does the hard work of actually getting a hold of the speaker and getting them signed up and committed to attending a meeting. and. <clears throat> and part of it is when we it we don't run the meeting when we bring in speakers I introduce them and then turn the meeting over to them 
because it's really not my meeting, it's not Char's meeting, it's, uh, it's for the neighborhood. So the speakers come in, they, they give their little presentation, then it's opened up to question and answer. And quite frankly, a lot of times the, the folks in, in the group, in the audience, they just want somebody to hear their frustration with what's going on at Lance. And it almost always comes back to issues of safety and livability. Have the issues of safety and livability that you think began with Charlie Hales gotten, in, in your opinion, have those become worse in Lens? Oh, yes. Without a doubt. All you have to do is read the, the daily crime reports, the murders, the shootings, the um, robberies, car thefts. All of that has escalated significantly. And I don't buy the contention that it's, oh, it's all because of COVID. It is, it's city, one, one failed city policy after another. They really don't have a hand on what it's going to take to turn Portland around. What do you think it will take to turn Portland around? It will take a totally different uh, set of commissioner, a uh, group of commissioners for the city and the county and to someone who is, will, who is really interested in making Portland a safe place to live. And if, if that would happen, I think it would still take 10 years to get back to where we were 10 years ago. Portland was still a great place to live 10 years ago, and it, is, it has not gotten better since then. What about you, Char? Do you agree? What, what do you think it would take to, to turn the city around? Well, I, I definitely believe we need new leadership. That would be first and foremost. And then I think all the money that Metro is spending on housing first should be spent on mental health and drug addiction. You've got a lot of that out there, combination of both. But they aren't spending any money, and they talk about these, these um, housing with services. It's going to take them years to build that. We already have facilities that are available for mental health. If they would put that money towards the people that need mental health to get them into these facilities. And if you look at our website, there is a list of mental health facilities that cost money. These people don't have the money to get into these facilities because their Medicaid or whatever they're on, Oregon Health Plan, doesn't cover mental health. A lot of these programs for mental health only cover a number of days, if you're lucky. So we should take that, in my opinion, we should take that metro money that they're throwing into housing and get the people that are mentally ill off the street first. And it's not just metro money, it's city and county well, are spending huge resources on housing housing and trash cleanup, for, for lack of a better word. You wouldn't know it by looking around. No. They're spending a lot of money on housing or trash cleanup. No. Yeah, millions. Well, in some instances, billions. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that the ten-year estimate is low that that we're going to spend a billion dollars on affordable housing, yeah. and that's another misnomer. 
Because the, the affordable housing that is being built with, with our tax dollars, it's not affordable for any anyone who lives in East Portland. How, but, how do you know this? What do you know about it? Oh, we've, we've studied, and that came early when they when they built the, the first... Um, affordable housing? Well, affordable, the first new apartment, it was the Lentz, Oliver Station. Lentz URA, Oliver oh, Station. Yeah. And, uh, Lentz Commons. Lentz Commons, and, and anyway, they, uh, the, the units at that time, and this is like, Five or six years ago, worked out to three hundred thousand per unit. That that's pretty expensive housing. And the the new the new uh, apartment complex that the the same builder is going to put up in the downtown Lentz, there the rents, the market market rates for their rents are three dollars a square foot. So and and. 800 square foot apartment, which is a one or two bedroom apartment, is going to rent for $2,400 a month. The vast majority of the people who live in Lentz can't afford that rent without government assistance. So, this uh, and a small percentage of the, the units within any apartment that's built in any apartment building built in Portland, there has to be a percentage of units that are affordable. All that really means is that that they can line up the the financing through grants or or using the HUD pilot, what is it, Section Eight, to, to pay for the the taxpayers pay pay that rent. How how do you come to learn all this? If somebody's interested in figuring out what the city is in fact spending on a project, like let's say, like you said, housing, and you say we've studied it, where do you go to look at that? We were attending uh, EPAP meetings. What are those? East Portland Action Plan. It's a coalition of volunteers that have a housing subcommittee and a lot of what we call property pimps go to those meetings. They are building your low-income housing, so they are getting numerous grants from several different resources to build this low-income housing. So that's where you learn a lot of this. And a lot of the websites for these places will have that information on them. It's like if you go to the website for Oliver Station or Lens Commons, it'll tell you exactly how many of those units are considered affordable or low income. The Woody Guthrie building, which was built by Rose CDC, and that's a major developer for this low income housing in Portland. He's got units everywhere. And a lot of that, again, is your taxpayers. And that's what people don't understand. They think grants are free money. They don't understand that's your tax dollars. The government does not make money. They take money. And people don't understand that. Why do you think these units that are built for, say, Section 8 people or the units that are allegedly going to be used to house, you know, Tina Kotek talks about how housing is a public good, right? She's a public right. Yeah. I heard her say public yeah. good, but sure, yeah. public uh -huh. right. Yeah. 
I, th- I think either way you slice it, it comes down to the same result. Yes. And and why are these units like? Let's forget quote unquote affordable housing for a minute. Why are these units that are meant to house people who are lying in the gutters or people who are currently in shelter? Why, why are they so expensive to build? Materials, permits, building code. Yeah. Because the. You can build an apartment building for less than, well, before prices went up so much, I couldn't answer to current pricing, but I think there was a developer that said they could, that they could build housing for 100,000 a unit five, six years ago, and they wanted nothing to do with them. It, because the, the city's vision is, if you look at the buildings in Lentz, they're, they're the nicest looking buildings in Lentz. They're brick, brick-faced and premium cabinets and, you know, uh, oh, stone, stone countertops. They're, they're high, like Class A rental spaces. And it, they're, they're not affordable for the vast majority of the folks in Lance. It, and quite often when, when, quote, affordable housing is built, Something has to be torn down that was probably originally just by the age and the, the quality of the building already affordable housing. Natural, I think they call it naturally occurring affordable housing, like um, some trailer parks. It, it took a it took an acting code to keep trailer parks from being removed and turned in uh, apartment buildings built in their place because they know that what gets built there is going to be more expensive than what the folks were living in already. What what is this about? Spending this kind of money to build is the idea, I mean, is your armchair psychology that the city just feels like this money is never ending and so we'll just build the best of the best for people who are unhoused? Well, it is never ending as long as they can raise taxes and people keep passing these bonds. They don't get it. <laughs> yeah, it's only a hundred dollars more a year. It's only a hundred dollars more a year or so. And I, another contention of mine is that I, I believe the city and the county use tent encampments as a fundraiser. Talk about that. So, uh, if if you can show the voters enough tent encampments and and promise well we if we build if we just build enough affordable housing this will go away all we need is one more bond issue to, get, to be passed all we need is one more uh, tax to be approved and they they kind of hide the true cost of the taxation issues because our gross receipts tax was uh, designed to, to look like it's only going to tax the rich is that the CAT tax, the corporate activities tax? Is that what you mean? It is. Uh, it's the the tax on businesses that have greater than a five hundred thousand dollar a year. Yeah. Uh, in, yeah. That that it's a de facto sales tax. Yeah, it was passed on to all the consumers. It's, it's passed on to the consumers, but they don't they don't see it on the cash register receipt. A few businesses attempted to do that when when it was first enacted, and they got sued because I think because people didn't want to see it. Um, 
Oregon doesn't have a tax. Yeah, because we want to be able to say Oregon doesn't have a sales tax, but you do, and you're paying for it. You just don't see it. Well, and even if they take it off the receipt, it doesn't eliminate no, the, the fact that they're building up. it. Right. They're yeah. building it into what they're selling you. They're building it into their hourly rate right. that they're charging you, et cetera. Mm-hmm. What, what, is, what do you think it is? What, what logic is there behind uh, this, be, even building this affordable housing if the city, let's say the city does in fact know, it can't ever build enough, let, forget about affordable housing, let's say the city does know it can't ever build enough housing to house the people in the shelters, the people living out of their cars, the people splayed out on the gutters. What's the point of pretending like they can do it? I think I think your first problem was using the word logic. <laughs> there is no logic involved. It's all feelings. It's a feel-good thing. And I think that's the problem with the city. And there are hundreds and hundreds of available apartments right now. And they try to do a program that would entice these apartment owners to rent them to what we see on the street and they didn't sign up for some good reason so it's not a lack of apartments it's a lack of people i hope finally waking up that they don't want these people in their apartment complexes and like i said it's not logic it's feelings and did this governing with feelings begin with Hales, do you think? I think so. I think he was trying to appease the people. And I think we've continued doing that. You've got these loud voices out there saying that you're not being humane by doing the sweeps. They don't look at what these people are living in. It's not humane leaving them out there. But then they have, you know, the feelings get involved and it's like, you can't do this. And then the other group's saying you should do this. And... Housing's the issue. Let's build more housing and get them all into housing. And it's like, they're not using logic or common sense. And it, it's kind of a two-pronged issue because a lot of the folks who are unhoused are, they're unhoused because of choices in their life. They've cut themselves off from their families for one reason or another. It's because of drug addiction. Let's not forget about that one, mental health issues. And the, I think it's a lot of the people that are out on the streets fit into those, those three areas. And you, supportive housing will help some of them, but, but we, too many people who are living in tents presently have no interest, even the ones that seem to be okay, they, they may be there because there are no rules when you live outside. And I don't know why anyone would choose to live outside, but the fact of the matter is there. we've talked to some very sane sounding people that they like, they like the way they're living, that's what they tell us. But um, it, it will definitely take supportive housing to help some of them. Really, I think we need some kind of mental health institutions or facilities that can 
that can help people with no income to, to pay for the, the services they need. And then it's going to take policy to, to get people to choose to get help because there, there is no provision to force someone to, to go into a mental health facility. They have to choose to go under Oregon law. Right. So what do we do about that? Because it sounds like we're dealing with a rather service. Forget sounds like. All you have to do is use your own eyes and take a look around. We're dealing with a rather service-resistant population. We are. Change um, the laws. It, in the past, there, there, was a, there was a mechanism in place that when someone was picked up uh, for drug use or they, they could... They were offered the choice, jail or or treatment. Right, like and, drug courts, which are basically yeah, gone and post that's gone. Measure yeah. 110. Yeah. I think uh, Measure 110 was, was a mistake, and maybe what we need to look at is at repealing that. Is it going to happen? I'm not very hopeful. When you say you ask people who are homeless why they don't go into shelter or why they don't go into housing and they say they like their way of living. Are you saying that you actually interact with homeless people and ask them questions about their lives and, and why they're engaged in, in these tent encampments, these situations? We have. I, you know, I won't say it's an everyday occurrence, but we have had that conversation. And can you think of any time when that wasn't the answer we got? The only two couple we met when we were down by the bus stop cleaning up was a young couple who had just came into Portland, and we asked them if we could find a facility where they'd be interested. They said yes. We never found them or saw them again, and that's the case with a lot of them. When they say they're willing to get some kind of help or housing, they disappear. But yeah, for years when we lived on 105th, I was walking, picking up trash, so I knew a lot of the people that lived along the MUP because that was the area I walked. And the MUP is the multi-use path. Yeah, that runs along the Flavel Max. And there were lar large encampments down there. I would hand them trash bags, I would talk to them. They, they you know, they had issues, of course, but for the most part, they did not have any use, definitely for shelters, because you're sleeping in a room with another person you know nothing about. They didn't feel safe. So the shelter system, in my opinion, doesn't work. That's why I like Bybee Lakes, because they have drapes or curtains between each little sleeping pod. You're not seeing the other person in the other bed. They have their own little dresser, their own little bunk. So it's more private. But the shelter system, if you've ever been through one, they're all open. It's just a big open room with bunk beds or mats on the floor or whatever they do in those shelters. And what's even more interesting to me is a person like David and I, we cannot get a tour of a regular shelter, TPI, <laughs> I asked, can we go see what the Willamette looks like? What's TPI? Uh, Transitional Projects, Inc., I think, 
is what it stands for, but it was uh, Devendorf. He was the George director. Devendorf. He was the director of that. He is no longer the director. But yeah, if you want a tour of any of the local shelters through transition, you aren't allowed because of privacy for their clientele. But if you want to go tour Bybee Lakes, you are more than welcome. They will let you come through any time. They are very transparent. What's the difference there? Is it just a difference of the people who are running the nonprofit organizations that administer the sh these particular, for lack of a better term, I know they're different, but we'll call them shelters? Ellen Evans is open and transparent. That's the difference. If you want to set their books, how many people they've housed, you can get that. I've asked for it. They've given me all those stats, what their cost is, how they've helped people, who they've helped. They keep track of the people they help. The city-run money profit shelters, you can't get any records. Are there any shelters that literally are city-run, or are they all run, forget Bybee Lakes for a second, are these run-of-the-mill shelters in Portland that we're talking about here, are they all run by nonprofits that get grants from the city. They're all run by nonprofits, but I call them city run because they're all getting money through the Joint Office of Homeless Services. They're all funded through the Multnomah County or the city of Portland. To me, that's city run because when you take money from either place, you have to follow whatever their criteria is. I mean, I know they have their own, but they're all low, low barrier. That's a city requirement. That low, barrier. low barrier. The, I, I think there might be some that are Maybe drug testing, but I'm not even sure any of them drug test. I think they're all low barrier. David, when you say that's a city requirement that they be low barrier, how, how do you know that? That Because we've been told that. They're, um, the city, and there, there is a theory for it, that if you put roadblocks to someone getting into a shelter, it makes it harder for them to go, but it's... At some point, we need to get people to make a choice to change their lives or else it's going to become an ever larger population that that is dependent on somebody else taking care of them. And, and what Alan Evans is doing at Bybee Lakes is it, it's not a handout, it's a hand up. So folks are getting clean there. They, they're working with local warehouses and businesses out there, and they, they all get jobs and um, actually pay for pay their way. And, and a, another point in looking at their, at their finances is that their per-person-per-night cost is far lower than it is in the city shelter system, which is kind of incredible to me. They're... Uh, and there's no accounting for where the money goes or what what the results are with with anything through the Joint Office of Homeless Services. They're, they've got a huge budget, but it's a wall. All you know is how much money is going in. And they make the point that they don't operate shelters themselves. The money all goes to nonprofits. You cannot get a, an accounting for anything. We, we started asking for a, uh, an audit just of, of their budget the first year that we started. 
and we were told by by the city and the county, oh, it'll be five years be before before we can get an audit done on them. Well, we're way past five years now, and there still hasn't been a meaningful audit audit of where where the money goes. Why five years? Any kind of explanation there? <laughs> None. <laughs> be, I think because the assumption is if they tell us five years, we're old, we will be gone by then. <laughs> I mean, at some point you must have been listened to because Nigel Jacquez, who's... Well, I'm what we... Yeah, I mean, yeah. in my opinion, yeah, one of the best journalists in Portland, certainly I think the best at Willamette Week, did a piece, does this mean that you've seen this piece? It's December 2nd, 2021. Uh, the headline is Multnomah County Auditor Finds Joint Office Overstated Number of Homeless yeah. People at House. Yes, yeah, I saw that. By more than 20%. Yeah. 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 yeah, I think they flunked their audit. <laughs> it, if it were a private <laughs> business, they would, they would have been, been shut down. The uh, interesting thing is, they're auditing themselves, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the auditor is a Multnomah yeah. County employee. Right. Correct. This is not an independent auditor that's been hired by a un, an unconnected, yeah. even government office, like yeah. let's say by the city or by the governor. Or I mean, the, what's so fascinating is it makes you wonder if this isn't even an overly conservative audit of what's really going on. Wow. Because I'm assuming that now Chair Deb Kavori is the one who, I mean, my understanding is the chair holds the purse strings at Multnomah County and must provide the auditor with a budget and probably was not super happy to learn that the data was, and, and this is a quote that Nigel took down, not reliable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, no, what we heard originally was when we had them in was basically the money goes to the Joint Office of Homeless Services. It's dispersed to all the nonprofits. Obviously, the nonprofits don't have to account where it's used or how it's used because they don't keep any kind of tracking to the nonprofit to see how it's used. And our other issue is they, they brag about how many people they've got into housing but they can never tell you how many people are still in housing. I actually got a call a few weeks ago from the Joint Office of Homeless Services. We got one person into housing who was a former neighbor. He was just amazed and so happy that that person's still in housing. And I knew that person's still in housing because I still stay in contact with them. But they don't do that. They don't have any clue how many people are still in housing that they put in housing. Yeah, it's interesting. In this article, Nigel writes, among joint office program participants that were placed in housing, approximately 60% were missing address data mm -hmm. or had address data that were not actual addresses. Mm -hmm. And without actual addresses, there was no way for auditors to determine where people were actually living, whether their placements were adequate. They were unable to draw really any reliable conclusions based on the data that they were given. And beyond that, the auditor discovered another problem. The joint office was classifying people as having been moved into permanent housing who had just begun a housing uh -huh. placement uh -huh. process. Right. And the placement process, the, the guy I got into housing signed up 
with Home Forward, I'm assuming when he went to the Lyman shelter, it took four years for them to reach out to say there was something available. Four years? Four years. Four years. Four years. He and was, this man lived in a shelter for he, four no, years? No, no he, he lived was on under the, street. the bridge. He was on the street. And this is someone you were trying to help. Yeah. Yeah. We, we only knew that he was, it was kind of by accident because he had asked Char to monitor his email for him. And she got an email saying that he was about to be taken off the list. And he's... He's incapable of doing the paperwork that it takes to actually get housed, and I, I would, there are probably a lot of people out there in the same same situation. It, it took Char getting him to appoint her as an well, advocate, an basically. advocate, and she took care of all the paperwork that allowed him and to get into housing. all the agencies, because there was more than one agency oh, you had yeah. to deal with. Home Forward's your main agency, but then there were other agencies that were paying his rent, paying his utilities, and so I had to deal with all of those people on top of Home Forward. By agency, do you mean various nonprofits? Right, various nonprofits. There was one that did something for men. There was another one that did something for people who had uh, experienced uh, abuse on the street. That you know, it was just there was a mirage of different agencies, which most people aren't going to be able to deal with. These people have mental illness or drug addiction, or both. So it's like every one of these people that work with the Joint Office of Homeless Services or the nonprofit, they need a personal advocate to walk them through all this stuff. Basically, I had this individual come up to our house, just sign, just sign. What am I signing? It doesn't matter. Just sign it. That's the only way you're getting to housing. He has all the paperwork now. He can read it at his leisure. But to get to that point, he wouldn't have, he didn't even want to go there. He said, I don't need housing. I said, you're living under the Flavel Road. You need to get into housing before you're killed. He'd been in an emergency room more than once, yeah, being hit did. over the head by somebody else. But it's like, no one really understands what it takes to get into this housing that's even out there, that's available. But four years, yeah, he was on the list for four years. And... This gentleman in particular that you were helping, that it took him four years to get into housing, he wasn't interested in anything transitional in the meantime. He was going to stay where he was, and then he was going to wait for housing. Is that right? I don't know if he understood transitional. I don't think he understood much of any of this process at all, to be honest with you. I think when he was in the, the treatment facility, the they shelter. got the shelter. They Yeah, not a treatment yeah. facility. I misspoke myself, a warehouse for homeless people. Um, someone signed him up with Home Forward. He didn't remember ever signing he up didn't. for it. No. Yeah. What he did so you're saying he did a brief stint in a shelter? Yes. Yeah. He stayed I'm assuming it was a Willamette shelter and I don't even know if he was there a week. Because he didn't remember being in a shelter. He didn't remember signing up for Home Forward. And I can only assume that he had to be in a shelter and he had to have help signing up for Home Forward, or he would have never been on this list. Based on what you're telling me and based on what I see with my eyes and hear as I sit here downtown today with, with you all and sit here downtown most every day <laughs> in my office and live in, on the Inner East Side, um, not up in the West Hills or, or really anywhere away from a lot of this, 
it sounds, let me, let me know if you agree with this assessment, but it sounds to me, and especially based on what you just said, I mean, this, this is a population of people. And I'm not talking about people in shelters. I'm not talking about the people we don't see. I'm not talking about people in Section 8 housing. I'm not talking about people couch surfing. I mean, I do think that there's a disconnect. I guess I should start with this. I think there's a disconnect Jesse Burke, who runs the Society Hotel, helped me parse this out and said, look, when you're talking to these government officials and when you're talking to really anyone about homelessness, what you need to do is distinguish the people you see with your eyes and ears splayed out on the gutters, on the sidewalk, pooping, engaged in so really, there's there's self-destruction going. I mean, maybe not self-destruction. There is a destruction of humanity going on with these people that there isn't, let's say, with a lot of the people in the, in the shelters, couch surfing, um, perhaps living in their, they may be functional. They may not have an addiction. They may not have a mental illness, but they're living in their car for whatever reason. And what Jessie said is her understanding from the joint office is that their statistics are correct that 80% of the homeless that they deal, quote unquote homeless, that they deal with are these people that we don't see, are these people that really are one paycheck away from house, probably housing themselves that are functional enough to do the paperwork to figure out what they need to do to get into these mm -hmm. shelters, et cetera. And I do think that there's a big disconnect when we try to engage city leaders and frankly these nonprofits uh, in a discussion about homelessness because and and I think this makes sense they want to talk about the 80% and I get that because that's probably because that's the majority but that's not what people in Portland are concerned about we know we do a good job with the 80% mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is that your sense I would say yes and so it's just so difficult, at least when I talk to them, it's, it's exceedingly frustrating because I'll talk about homeless and they'll talk about what a great job they're doing. Yeah. And I look around yeah. and I say, well, you're doing a great job. I mean, I, I watched a man standing in traffic and almost get killed. I watched people smoking fentanyl in front of Nordstrom Rack. And I, I mean, this is a little literal mm -hmm. conversation I had with somebody downtown uh, from used to be at, at joint office and and I said I not only that there was human poop in my parking garage and a and a pile of needles and this is just tra this is traversing into a building it took me maybe seven minutes and and he just continued with his talking points and I think what I should have done is said the people I'm referring to when I use the word homeless, and I probably could have just pointed my finger mm -hmm. out the window, are these people. Mm -hmm. And what are you doing about these people? Because I don't know that anybody, I mean, given the way Oregon's constitution is set up in this very libertarian manner, mm -hmm. and like you said, given the laws of Oregon and given the way the ACLU seems so interesting on doubling down on on mentally ill and, and drug addicted people's liberty. I don't know that a lot of people have great ideas for solutions about these people that, that we're seeing in the gutters. It's, it's gotta be force. I think, I think it does because the example you just gave me of this man, four years getting into housing 
And then the question is, well, what about the temporary shelter option? Well, he didn't even know to do that. He somehow ends up in a shelter. We don't even know how. He gets, he doesn't even know, forget knowing how to do the paperwork. He, he doesn't realize paperwork was done. <laughs> um, I mean, these are clearly, all you have to do is look around at these people splayed out on the streets and understand immediately that they're so dysfunctional that the idea that they have any kind of agency, which apparent, which I guess we're all pretending and which our laws currently assume is silly. Well, what gets me is their navigation teams. We had a, a manager at Burgerville out on 92nd and Powell who was willing to work with the LNLA to work with the unhoused to get them into something that just worked for food. So they were going to give them uh, vouchers. vouchers for burgers and fries and milkshakes or whatever Burgerville sells if they would come out and help us clean up for a couple hours a day. I contacted Multnomah County and the city of Portland. I said, you have all these navigation teams. I'd love to work with a navigation team that could come out and talk to them and connect them to services. I don't want to just give them vouchers for food. I actually want to make a difference here. I was told that's not going to happen. They don't have the manpower to do that. So all I ever hear about all these navigation teams with the county and the city that they have all these people that go out and talk to these unhoused people to get them into services of some kind, where are they? If they won't even come out and help a nonprofit who was willing to work with the unhoused, where are they? What do they actually do? The unhoused that I've seen say they never see these people. I don't know if they do or not, or they're lying. I don't know, because then you'll see an article that says, oh, we go out there all the time. We've seen these people four or five. The only person I actually know that's an advocate that goes out and navigates is Tiffany, Tiffany Griggs. She's the only one I have ever met. I have her phone number in my phone. I can call her. I have shared her number with people when they have someone on the street that maybe wants help. And she, where does Tiffany work? She worked, She worked, and I think she still works at Clackamas Service Center. But she will actually answer the phone. If you have somebody, I've called her in the past to help somebody. Of course, they've gone by the time she gets there, or they don't want the help. But that's the only person I know that's on the street that actually does what I hear the city and county are doing. And when you say Clackamas Service Center, is this a service center that is run by the Clackamas, by government, by Clackamas County? It's it's right behind Fred Myers on Johnson Creek. I don't know who runs it. I don't know who funds it, but it's in Clackamas County. I don't know where the money comes from. Well, that might it. be probably why it's they've got somebody who's effective. <laughs> <laughs> Could be. But no, as far as his navigation teams, I've never seen any of them out there. I've seen the Portland Street Medicine. I've seen Portland Street Response. I've never, ever in my entire career of doing this seen anybody from a navigation team. Tiffany, on the other hand, we would run into her periodically when we were doing cleanups and lents on the multi-use path or just on the street. And she was... So I don't know where these now. She would have socks and batteries. And, and batteries for the folks on the street. That that was kind of her hook to get them to talk to her. Like she, cell phone batteries or 
the AAA, little AAA bat batteries. Yeah. Something that all of them need for their electronic devices. But yeah, so I don't know what, what the navigation team in, in the city or the county do. I have no clue. Like I said, I, I tried to hook up with them just to help talk to the people that we were going to be working with, and they were a no-go. So let's say, Shar, you're governor of Oregon. What do you do? Do you, you're, you're saying we need to compel, the people that we see splayed out on the streets need to be compelled yes. into some form of treatment, whatever it may, I mean, obviously they need to be triaged, probably against their will, yep. compelled into whatever form of treatment is deemed necessary, hopefully by MDs and, and PhDs, hopefully by real experts yes. and not mm -hmm. and, and medical medically trained people, not just nonprofits funded by the city, but I mean, you know, real deal medically trained people that might deal with let's say rich people that are going to promises in Malibu, good caliber type people. I don't know where we find them. I don't know, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know. We'd, we'd have to put together all the logistics, but if you're governor, are you saying that you would do things like look at laws that are in place, like conservatorships or guardianships that keep people from being dangerous to themselves or others and see if we can use that and maybe even go as far as changing things like the laws and the constitution to make it less, hands-off, less libertarian, and more focused on governmental intervention? I would definitely go that route for these people on the street. There's no other There's no other chance for their lives. I mean, they are so out of it. Like I said, I only dealt with one person, and he isn't as far gone as some of these people out here on the street. So they need help. They, they need help, and, and somewhere along the line, and if the nonprofits were doing the job they claim they're doing, you would see results. I don't see any results. I really don't. I think we really need to reopen the mental hospitals that we have access to. I know Damage was closed. I know the state hospital in Salem is basically shut down. There was one in eastern Oregon or southern Oregon that the, the governor wanted to shut down. I think we need those mental facilities, and I think we need to start mandating that the people that are running around here nude, screaming at the whatever, they need to be forced into treatment. I mean, their lives cannot be good. I, I can't see this as being humane, letting I, people run around. I don't know why we couldn't use conservatorship as a, as a means, that, because you can do that with house people if they're not taking care of themselves or they're being victimized. And every one of these folks out on the street is being victimized by somebody two-tenths over. There's not a doubt in my mind, unless they're the ones doing the victimizing. It's a free-for-all in tent bill. What would you say to the criticism that, well, you just want to force these people off the streets and into treatment because you don't want to see it? It's not about me seeing it. It's inhumane to allow them to live like this. This is not humanity. I don't care what the advocates say, and I know they like saying the sweeps are killing them and forcing them into treatment is killing them. It's saving their lives. I don't know how they can't look at that logically and see that this is trying to save them. They're dying of fentanyl daily. 
this is not humane. Do you have a sense of, have you talked to these quote-unquote stop the sweeps people, and do you have a sense of what it is that they want? I have not spoken to them. I, I, would, I should have them out to a meeting to see where they're coming from and why they feel this is inhumane. That would be interesting because they have a really loud voice. And, and there was, because we used to go to the... Uh, city commissioner meetings and the Multnomah County commissioner meetings. And there was one particular gentleman in a wheelchair that you could count on him for every meeting that he was going to be there, stop the sweeps, sweeps kill. And uh, I think he passed away. I believe he passed away, but he That's was... Too bad. Although given that the, I think that's still the loudest narrative, somebody must have taken that banner and and run with it and yeah, I, don't. I don't think he was the only one it's just he's he's the one that you saw at every meeting but there there I think there's a large group of people that have the same view and it it, it is inhumane and it, the city is doing a real disservice to to say that it is humane to let people live in the mud in tents we're, we're supposedly the wealthiest country in the world, and the fact that we have a third world undocumented population living in our midst, that uh, I guess we, uh, they don't count, evidently. And it, their, their livability is far worse than us housefolk is, and I, I would wish better for them. By a third world undocumented population, you're not referring to Immigrants, you're referring oh, no. to these people, these are mostly people white, adult, frankly, splayed out on the white. streets of Portland. Yeah. yeah. That's another odd thing is I keep see, hearing statistics that 60% of the homeless people are people of color. I hear that too. And I, 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 I don't know if I've seen six homeless people in Lentz that are people of color. Yeah, They're almost yeah. all white, uh, 20 to 40-year-old men. I would, I, that's my, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm in Lens sometimes. I'm not there a lot, but just my assessment of being everywhere from downtown to, to Lens to far southeast to northeast and Laurelhurst, et cetera, et cetera. I would agree with that assessment. And I wonder if the city's statistics, if the, again, there's this disconnect, the city statistics, who, who they're really talking about are the couch surfers, are the, um, let's say I'm from Mexico and I have a friend from Mexico who's here, documented or undocumented, and he's sleeping on my couch and the city technically counts him as homeless. People in, people in shelters, people really that are like a rent check away from being housed. I wonder if that's who they're, it must be who they're talking it about because be. we're not seeing them yeah, here. They're not the visible homeless that we see. So, I mean, obviously, we've always had drugs and mental illness since the beginning of humanity, really. What what do you think it is that changed? I mean, I know it changed with Charlie Hales, but, like, we've always had drugs and mental illness. Like, what happened here? We, we have, but the, the progressive politics that have really taken over how Portland has run in, in the past, say, 10 years, 15 years— 
has made Portland a destination for homeless across the country. We have it on good authority that fully, it, it's in the 30 to 40% range of our homeless were homeless when they got here. They're, they're not people that have li lived their whole lives in, in Portland, but because it's they're welcome to, to live wherever they want to, however they want to in Portland, they're, um, they're, we're getting more than our fair share of folks from other states. When you say we have it on good authority, does that mean you've talked to like somebody official who keeps metrics? Keith, Keith, Keith Wilson. Keith Wilson. He came out and did a presentation, and it was funny because Chris from the fire station 11 said he was so glad that Keith was one of the first people he had spoken to that was honest about it. So if you get a chance, watch that video. It's on our website. But it was Keith Wilson, and he presented his stats, which... I'm assuming we're pretty accurate because I'm sure he did his research on it. He is he, really a numbers guy. Yeah. Where is Keith from or what is he affiliated with? He runs Titan Trucking and he has a company that's down on Johnson Creek Boulevard. I don't know exactly where he lives, but... Yeah, he ran for city council last last election. Or the one before. Or the one before. But he, I'm assuming it was the one before because I... The one, yeah. yeah, it was the yeah. one before. Yeah. Yeah, because he was running against Mingus Maps, I think. I, think. I don't even remember who he was I don't remember. So Keith has done his, he, he what, he compiled research on this? Yeah. He's done his own research? Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, if you watch that, and I think the, the research, he actually made a short uh, presentation. I think that's also right under the meeting. So you can just watch that, and it's, it's a PowerPoint of all the numbers. And my understanding is that all of the LNLA meetings are not just open to the public, but you videotape them and anybody can watch them like on your website or on YouTube. Yeah, yeah there's a link on our website to the YouTube channel where all of our meetings are, are posted. And do you think that this influx of homeless from other states, cities, what have you. It, is it your understanding, is it Keith's understanding that that began after the Measure 110 decriminalization of drugs? It didn't help, but I think it started before that it point. It started before that. I think it started with, with Hales opening up the spring water because there was a, um, I actually made a website over called the Right to Rest Bill. At that point, it didn't pass, and I believe we have a, Similar bill that is now passed, yeah. but it was basically allowing people to camp on any public space, and that included parks. Are you talking about a city council bill or it was a legislative? A house, it was a house bill. It was a state house bill. The, the right to rest bill, I can't remember what the number on that one. The new one that's enacted as of last year is 3115. House Bill 3115, and I think a lot of the language in that is very similar to the original. Which was back in 2017 or 18. 16. 16. I can't remember. Oh. When I made the website. Yeah, because it. that one was defeated. Yeah, that one was defeated. This one passed. But, but the yeah. legislature has kept, kept doubling down on that one every year until they, until they got something passed last it, 
Yeah. Is this the bill that is characterized by the legislature as trying to make Oregon compliant with the Boise decision? The Ninth it Circuit decision? It might be worked in there. I didn't read the entire bill, but it might be worked in there because it's, it's statewide. Yeah, I don't know that it's worked in there, but I just know that's that's the way they were just sort of selling it to everybody. Like, well, we need to pass this so that we're in line with Ninth Circuit law. It, it could have been. Shariah Mayfield explained all that to us because she's an attorney, too. And she said they've totally misrepresented <laughs> the, the city what, that, misrepresented what the, that bill is about. The no, Boise, what the court the decision Boise. was. Yeah. yeah, the Boise decision. Well, I think they have to. I mean, yeah. it, you know, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, that's not my area, but yeah. I think they have too, based yeah. on what I've read. And I don't even think you have to be a lawyer to read the decision <laughs> and understand that, uh-huh. that that's not what the decision says. In fact, T.J. Browning, who's the head of public safety from Laurel. Laurelhurst, was on here, and she said she read a Harvard Law Review article about it, and it was clear to her that, um, and and you know, she certainly is not legally trained and just that it was it's very clear to me that really what the decision says is you have to have enough shelter beds in order to criminalize or or penalize homelessness in a criminal way engage in anti-vagrancy laws etc you've got to have enough shelter beds to do that and so it seems to me that all that that would require is building enough shelter beds so that you can enforce those laws they, they just, the city doesn't seem interested in doing any of that. Well, I think Shariah's take on it was that we currently have available shelter beds that they won't even use. Not even having enough for all the unhoused, but just get the ones that we do have beds available for in those beds. But I think we have to prove that. I think we have to, like, to the extent that was challenged by somebody mm-hmm. like a Juan Chavez or one wow. of those type of lawyers, I think we would have to prove, so we well, this, this is the amount we had available. We did a sweep of Laurelhurst. Uh, we, and Wheeler does this all the time. He, and he'll give you the numbers. He'll say, we did a sweep of Laurelhurst. Mm-hmm. This many people, it's never any significant amount. This many people agreed to go in shelters. And I think, I'm sure, it's a much tinier amount that actually stays sheltered mm-hmm. but he'll mm-hmm. say this amount agreed to go into shelters this amount left uh we still have and he will say we have beds available yeah. but i think the question is where where are the metrics on where the beds are how many we have available i mean i think we'd have to produce all that and my understanding is we don't have it i don't i've heard we're building it i don't know that we're building it that kind of infrastructure it seems like the city is not interested in doing anything to um why i guess i would say why would the city try to comply with the boise decision if they're not interested in anti-vagrancy laws and i don't think that they are i don't think they are either no they're not i i would <laughs> I, I think they use the Boise Boise decision as a reason not to enforce anti-vagrancy as laws. A, they, yeah, it's they, a cloak. It's yeah. an excuse. Yeah, they they because a lot of a lot of things get blamed on the the Boise decision. And for sure, it confines cities. I mean, some of my wokest, most progressive friends will say that they don't like the Boise decision because. They agree with you that they that, that this idea that we should just leave people splayed out in gutters is inhumane and we've got to compel some kind of treatment, but they don't like the Boise decision because it does, it certainly does 
bind cities in a way. I mean, it, it says you, you actually can't enforce these laws at all unless you come up mm-hmm. with um, shelter metrics and you can prove that there's somewhere for them to go. And you can't just kick them out. Like if they want to go to shelter, you must house them. And I will say that is an interesting stricture. Like as much as I agree with the Boise decision, like, yeah, I mean, I think if you're going to pick somebody up off the street and say, get out of here, you probably should have somewhere for them to go. It's just, you know, I'd love for them to take the drug treatment or the mental health treatment or whatever. Um, obviously, they're, these are service-resistant people. The, the population we're talking about that you see splayed on the streets is, it, look, if they weren't service-resistant, they wouldn't be splayed out in the gutter. Yeah. That's correct. Exactly. It's just common sense. But we've lost mm-hmm. all logic and common sense with buzzwords like houseless neighbors mm-hmm. and... Um, and words like NIMBY mm-hmm. that, that are being thrown around as epithets and white privilege. And I mean, the minute they start using those, the, these loudest people in the room types, the stop the sweeps types type, start using that language, engaging in, you know, political violence. I mean, the stuff that, that's going on in Laurelhurst, anytime they talk about, and anytime Ted Wheeler wants to do a quote-unquote sweep, the the broken windows, the defacing of buildings, the graffiti, the defacing the park, setting up tents to lure more people over mm-hmm. there to try to badger the city out of cleaning this up. This accept, it's just, it's like it's, it's so ingrained, it's accepted. It's almost cultural in the it city. Is. It is. It's a new religion. <laughs> I, why do you think that is? I think that's right. But what? why do you think that is? I mean, it doesn't help anybody. It doesn't help the people living in Laurelhurst or house, and it certainly doesn't help the people in the tents. I think originally Wheeler was trying to get favoritism with certain groups, obviously. He was down with Antifa protesting. I think he is so into the perception of what people think of him. I think he worries more about that than what's really going on with the city. They like me. They accept me. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I really feel that that's how he operates, is by who likes him. I don't, otherwise, why would this go on? Why, why didn't he, back when they started breaking windows of businesses and marauding the city. Why did he stop it? He had a police force at that point. He did. Why did he allow it to go on if it wasn't for, you know, I don't want these people not to hate me. What's your take on Sam Adams? Because I've been told that by people close to the city and actually even by Jesse Burke, who works closely with both Wheeler and Sam Adams, that Wheeler is very non-confrontational, but Sam is his enforcer. He hired Sam to be his bulldog. Sam doesn't care. He's happy to engage in confrontation. I mean, what what is your take on that? Because let's say that you're right, that Wheeler just wants to be liked. But Well, okay, I mean, Adams doesn't care. So why is Adams so interested, it seems like, interested to... I'm, when I look around in kowtowing to these stop the sweeps, far left type people. Well, the fact that we can't get Sam Adams to come to our meeting or answer an email, I would say I have no idea what his point of view is, other than I've heard the same rumors you have, yeah. that he's the mayor's bulldog. But yeah, he won't respond to anything I've ever sent him. 
So I, I would love to know why he allows us to go on. If he is the bulldog. He's not much of a bulldog. Obviously not. Why doesn't he just step over Mayor and say, this is going to be done and it's going to be done now? Because he's the one that came out with the proposition of the thousand tent camp encampments. And David has his own opinion about that. Yeah. My, my opinion is that Wheeler uses Sam Adams to float ideas. To, to, get, to get people to react to it. But I think Wheeler's plan is something else other than what he what Sam Adams proposes. So it's... Um, what do you think Wheeler's kind of, plan is? I, I have no idea. I, I, I do know that... Isn't lot, it scary that we don't know what our mayor's plan is yeah. on homelessness? Well, he's... How many, uh, how many plans... To end homeless, have there been in Portland? I've lost track. Well, now there's this new something zero that the oh vision zero. Yeah, now that, that oh was that's streets. the driving. Yeah. So yeah, the three thousand challenge. Three thousand challenge. It's something. Oh, let me see if I can find it. It's something like commissioners are talking about the county commissioners. I think that's with Keith Wilson. I think that was part of his presentation. It was. It was housing first. It's house, It's based on housing first, but that's part of Keith Wilson's pr proposal and presentation. Built for zero. Yeah, built, built for, for zero. zero. Yeah. But what's weird is I heard Sharon Myron speak, and she said she is a, a proponent. I mean, I haven't been to her website yet, but she says that it's on her website, and she's a proponent of this what she called built for zero data driven agenda to address homelessness mm -hmm. to understand how many are living outside, figure out our needs, set a goal. I mean, this all just sounds like a lot. Imagining the city trying to do this. I'm like, okay, we're a hundred years out now. Set a goal. Okay. <laughs> set a goal, build what you need to meet goals, build. I mean, I hear the word build and I'm yeah. like, Oh my God. I mean, in the city of Portland, you can't move a, a sink across yeah. the room right. without permitting and environmental people coming out and, and thousands of dollars. So what's interesting to me is I think I think Sharon is more of a center centrist. I mean, as far as Portland goes, centrist candidate, especially when compared to Jessica Vega Peterson. And Sharon will say, I am not housing first. Jessica Vega Peterson is housing first. Mm -hmm. But then I hear this built for zero thing. Which and is I, housing first. Yeah, that's a housing it's first. Housing. So is it your opinion then that this is just based on what you've seen and read and heard and the Keith Wilson data, this built for zero thing is just another, it's another housing first plan. Yeah. They're just not being explicit about it. They're not telling you that's the name of it. Right. No, that's my understanding of the the built for zero thing is housing because what they want to do and, and I understand with part of it because or agree with part of it is they need to go out with these navigation teams that I've never seen and get <laughs> names of these people they need to start tracking these people at this point they have no idea who's out there or really how many are out there because they go into these camps and these people move around the city all over the place so you go in a camp one week and this this group of people are there and then you go next week and it's a totally new group and it's and not even that you you go into a camp and if you look official people disappear and i i would say half the camp disappears if if they think somebody from the city is there 
but they need to start tracking them and they're not doing that. In fact, Peabot told me a funny story. They go out and tag vehicles with the green tags to tow them. Next time they go back, the week later, to tow, to tow them, it's a whole new group of people. It's not even, so they're talking to each other. We've been tagged, we're gonna move over here. You move into where we were. So they can't even move the people that are tagging because they're moving to another location where they don't know where they are because when they move to a new location, they have to find them and re-tag them. Yeah, process starts So that's over. basically how the camps work. So if these people are constantly on the moving, transients, good name, if they're constantly moving and you don't know who they are and if you've even met them, I don't know how these navigation teams, that, like I said, I've never seen one, are actually tracking these people to even get them into housing or any kind of help. Well, and if there's a concerted effort, I suppose one might say, well, okay, Kristen, you, that really negates your idea that these people are not at all functional and don't have the agency to uh, take their Seroquel or get off meth or whatever. And I guess to that, I would just say a couple things. And I don't know what you all think of this. I'm interested to hear what you think. But I, I think I would say... Like Michael Schellenberger says, who wrote that book, San Francisco, San Francisco, and ran for governor of California. I think I'd probably just say, well, their brains are hijacked by mental illness and drugs. That doesn't mean, I mean, what it means is they're service resistant and they're just going to stay on the streets. But it doesn't mean they're incapable of talking to each other and coordinating. And I guess I'd also say uh, when Jesse Burke, the owner of the Society Hotel in Old Town, came in here, she also made a distinction. And I think this is probably... Uh, right, because you see these people wandering around downtown too. They're not splayed out on the sidewalk, but she, she did say there is a group of homeless people in Portland, her understanding based on having a business in Old Town and living in Kenton, that there is a group of homeless people that choose homelessness as a lifestyle. And for whatever reason, maybe it's because they're not far enough into their addiction, or maybe it's because mental illness hasn't quite taken a hold of them yet, or maybe it's because it's literally just, I mean, I would call that mental illness, how they want to live. Um, what do you all think of that, those, those categorizations of what's going on here in Portland? Well, I think you're right. The first thing we need to do is triage. We need to get them all someplace. I don't care if it's the Coliseum or the whatever. We need to get them into a facility somewhere where we can go through and triage them and see what they need. Without knowing what they need, there's no way of treating them. That's my opinion. And I, I also believe there is a segment of that population that, that isn't going to, would never be agreeable to that because they're, there's a criminal element out there that preys on the homeless and the housed as equally. Yeah, Jesse talked about that too, and she said it's her understanding that this criminal element is not only part of the lifestyle, which she would put characterize as the lifestyle mm -hmm. bucket of homelessness, but also you know just like literal sociopaths that have no interest in doing anything other than engaging in crimes. That I mean, that's just their lifestyle, their life style criminals but also she says that she's heard from her from echelon security i think is her security company that that assists 
the Society Hotel from just being completely overrun and unable to function that she's had to hire because, of course, we don't have any police or anything to do that. She says that that because Portland has created this vacuum, this lawless culture, uh, many criminal syndicates, uh, these are people that are housed elsewhere some thousands of miles away in in some in in some cases she says criminal syndicates both national and international are moving into portland gangs mm-hmm. it's drugs it's um you know kevin dahlgren told me he saw ms13 in laurelhurst park i mean right. that's like notorious yeah google it that's like oh, notoriously yeah. the scariest yeah. yeah we've heard the same thing that ms13 is here have you really where yeah. did you hear that Somebody in California told us they were in California and they were moving north. Well, and and like Jesse said, it makes sense. I mean, when government steps back, Mm -hmm. police disappear, you defund the police and say all cops are bastards. Mm And you're if you're a criminal syndicate, you're in, you're as capitalist as anybody else. And you're going to look for a place yeah. to do what you need to oh, do yeah. and make money. And it's probably going to be in the place where there were 100 plus nights of riots. The jail was set fire. The mayor's condo was set fire. Dan Ryan's house was vandalized at least seven times. Mortars were thrown at the federal courthouse. Mm-hmm. And it was all sort of allowed to occur unfettered. Yeah. That's just Portlanders expressing their right to free speech, right? Well, it was mostly peaceful protests. Yeah, that's right. what we heard. Right, that's what we heard. That's what they. T- that's what they. That's what. Well, and again, there's that's there's that narrative of don't believe your lying eyes. Mm-hmm. Believe Correct. what we tell you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. Trust me, I'm from the government. Right, I'm, I'm here, here to, to help. help you. Right, and I. <laughs> I'm the, one of the furthest people from a Reaganite that you can imagine. But what's so, so, so weird about Portland is it's a strange confluence of big government for everybody who pays taxes. Like, we all have laws that we have to abide by, and we have to pay dearly to do it. And like I said, if you want to move a sink somewhere, good luck to you. You, might, you should probably calendar at least a year a to year. do that. Yes. Whereas if you're impecunious, uh, homeless, lay down on the street, have no money, or frankly, if you run a nonprofit, um, and I'm not saying they don't pay taxes, but I, I do think that there's there we've really elevated not not just nonprofits, but these quote unquote unhoused people over the people that are funding all these programs. The people that are funding the programs are the devil. Yeah, tax-paying mm-hmm. citizens. Yeah. Yeah. Which is so bizarre. They're literally biting the hand that feeds them. They're acting like the money's coming from Sam and Ted and Joanne. I mean, Joanne can't pay a credit card bill. We know that the money is coming from the the Cooks, the Columbia, the, the Jordan Schnitzers, the... Well, and wasn't it... Isn't isn't Bybee Lakes the former Wapato Jail? Isn't that what yeah. Jordan purchased because yeah. the city wouldn't do it? Yeah. Yes. And the Kifori city wouldn't do it, it and Kafori won the building torn Kifori. down. Deborah? Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, she's the current county commissioner. Yes. I think it's important that we talk about Multnomah County here because I've heard a lot of people say that they're not interested in voting for this Multnomah County chair race because they they don't understand Multnomah County, they don't understand what Multnomah County does, 
Um, can, can you all give us a little primer on this layer of government that is the Multnomah County Commission? Because I think people don't understand how much power they have. The city gets blamed for a lot of things that, that really, it, they have nothing to do with it. Um, prosecution is Multnomah County, and we have a, a progressive district attorney that does not enforce the laws that are on the books even. And uh, that that's your county government. Mental health is, uh, Portland has nothing to do really should, it's, it all comes from the county. The counties under Oregon law are in charge of mental health. And the Multnomah County does a terrible job. They're, they're they whine about uh, not being able to, they don't have enough staff. Well, you know, maybe they need to change their pay structure. I, I don't know what it is, but uh, it, for change to happen in Portland, it's going to take change happening at, at the Multnomah County level for things to get better. But their budget is enormous. Enormous. Do they really say they don't have enough staff? Is that what they say? I think it's the mental health part. The mental health they part. They claim they don't have staffing for. And it's funny because we went to a seminar or some kind of event where Jessica Vega Peterson, I believe, was speaking about how low the wages are for mental health people that go into that field. That's what and I'm thinking, that. okay, let's cut the wages for the county employees and, and give it to the mental health people because they're the ones that are doing the work, in my opinion. But I just want to go back a step. We first got involved with the Multnomah County hearings back when they were first putting Wapato on the chopping block to be destroyed. And Loretta Smith, bless her heart, she was the only county commissioner that stepped up and said it should be used for a facility. And of course you had the other side there saying, oh no, that's a jail, you'll traumatize them, you can't put all those people in there, that's a jail. And of course, Kafori did what Kafori did. And Loretta came to one of our meetings and that night she was so depressed because she said, I know they're gonna sell it. I know Kafori wants it torn down. And she, we talked about it at our meeting that evening. And that's exactly what happened. She sold it to Schnitzer for five million after we played taxpayers, paid over a hundred and some million to get it built and maintain it for 12 years or 14 years or how many years we maintained it at 300,000 a month and sold it to Snitcher. And thank God Snitcher didn't tear it down because Kafori was pushing for that hard. She didn't want it standing. And he worked with Alan Evans with Bybee Lakes Helping Hands and they opened it as a facility and it's running great. But I mean, we went to those county hearings about what they were gonna do with Wapato after we had just gotten, I think the bond was paid at that point and now they wanted it off the books or whatever Kafora was working for, but no, that, it was, yeah, it was a disservice to the taxpayers who didn't get a say in what happened to that facility at all. Thank God Schnitzer bought it for a big five mil. And <laughs> Less than the property value, yeah. let alone the building that, that's on it. 
And my understanding is the city doesn't contribute a dime to Bobby no. Lakes. No. No. I understand they're sort of in the process of getting some grants, but I don't know if that's for the city, county, or state. I don't know where the money's coming from. But yeah, right now it is all privately donations. Isn't that incredible? <laughs> it is incredible. And they're great people. We are such firm believers in it. We personally and our our organization has has donated money to Bybee Lakes. It it is. You mean it, the LNLA? The LNLA, yes. And it 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 would be a good model for other organizations to to mirror. To, to mirror. But I think the problem is is that a lot of the. I, they're they're trying to work themselves out of a job. If, if everybody got well, got, Bybee, got Lakes the, Bybee Lakes. If everyone got got sober, got out back in the workforce, they wouldn't be necessary. But um, homeless shelters, they're great because there's always going to be a clientele if you don't have any place for them to go when, when they leave the shelter. Well, and allegedly they're not full. And they're, they're not. They're not. That's. That's what we hear as well. But no, there's over what what uh, Jackerfoot told us when he was running for city council. There's over 300 nonprofits, and most of those are all focused on the homeless industry. So you've got all these nonprofits making buck millions off the homeless industry. It's, it's yeah. we call it the homeless industrial complex. Yeah, that's what uh, Kevin Dahlgren from We Heart Portland, who works for the city of Gresham, he calls it that, too. We, we met we met, <laughs> we him. met him. Oh, he came to your meeting? No. Oh, okay. He can't come to our meeting. We don't we don't pay enough. But, yeah, no, we met him when we did the parole cleanup down here okay. a few weeks ago. Yeah. When you say we, we don't pay enough, are you, did you invite him? And oh, he, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, he is so busy. He said they are nationally known now. And well, people, probably will, right. people will pay them to come to their meetings or come help come them speak, clean up yeah. areas. I got it. So, yeah, we, we don't have the money to afford yeah, to pay the, our speakers. The Pearl District has, they have a big budget, and they, they paid, paid them to come help clean up in the Pearl. And they're, I, I like his description of what they are. He said, we're disruptors, and they're, they're much more aggressive than I've ever seen anyone be without being unkind and cleaning up. Um, we've done cleanups with Solve, and their rules are you stay 20 feet away from any tent. What and, is Solve? Oh, uh, yeah. Save Oregon. Is it a nonprofit? Is oh, it? yeah, it's yeah. a nonprofit. It's yeah, a no, nonprofit no. that was originally founded for doing beach cleanups and waterway cleanups, and they got into the, into the homeless cleanup bit a few years ago. They got ago. into the urban. Urban. Well, there's a lot of money in that. Oh, there is, and they've there gotten, they've and gotten they've some got, nice grants. They've gotten city grants to, to do that. Let's see if I can find it. You know, we talked about the importance of understanding Multnomah County's role in the dysfunction of government and the importance of this Multnomah County chair election. And I think one thing people need to understand is, you know, I'm looking at this right now on the Multnomah County website, their budget for 2023 is 3.3 billion dollars. 3.3 taxpayer, 3.3 billion taxpayer dollars for 2023. And the idea that we 
can ignore what's going on with the Multnomah County Commission or the chair, or we should be disinterested in that Multnomah County chair vote, I think is naive and short-sighted and I think just reflects the confusion in in Portland generally about all of these layers of government that we have and what they all do. I agree. And yeah. what they're all responsible for. And I'm starting to wonder if the opaque nature of the way that they all operate is, is intentional. <laughs> because they're certainly not explaining their, no one is doing a, a civic government primer to anyone in this city about what these various government forms of government do, how they serve us, what we should hold them accountable for. That's basically why we've had them all out to our meeting. So people could understand the difference between what the county does, what the city does. But I don't know if they're not grasping what they're actually being told. I don't know, because we're very clear on what the county and city does. But as you say, most people blame the city. They blame the mayor. Well, I think most people are uninformed. I think it's too confusing. When you say things like metro, people don't understand that that's literally a layer of government, that there are metro commissioners that are elected to hand out like money right. under this homeless, the billion with a B homeless bill. Well, like Prosper Portland, that's another layer of the city. Talk about that. Prosper Portland, well, they, they did the URA, the urban renewal area for Lentz. And they put millions into that area. But part of the agreement with that URA was to bring jobs into the area. They did very little of that. What they did was they gave business, small businesses grants for a certain amount of years to open up a business in Lentz. So more taxpayer money went to pay to have businesses come into Lance that aren't giving enough. I don't know what they're yeah. giving back to the most, most of those grants really were for tenant improvements for small businesses that were leasing space and in, in the new in buildings well, in the I forgot URA. how much Zoigel House got. Zoigel House got a huge grant. They what did. is that? It's a it's a bar and grill. It's a burger place basically, but they got a huge grant when they first came into Lance. To open it, and I forgot how much it was because the guy who owned the carpet store, who didn't get a grant, told us how big a grant it was that Zoigel House got to open. And before that, it was a Russian bakery because they failed after whatever the amount on their agreement was because it's a, it's a temporary loan. I mean, it's just to get you up and running, and then if you fail, you go away. Yeah, they just write write the money off. Yeah. Yeah. So you're saying it's a risk free yeah. loan. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But then at some point you have to start paying that humongous rent or lease. And if they can't afford it, they just go away. And then the money's gone and the taxpayers yeah. paid for this yeah. business mm -hmm. to move in briefly, right. fail, move out, only probably to pay for somebody else to move in. Yeah. Because we've had several of those. We've had a wine shop that failed next to Bella's. Doigle House, before they came, it was a Russian bakery. There was a smoothie place on the corner, which is now Humdinger's. Mm -hmm. They failed and went away. So, yeah, you just have the cycle of businesses that are getting these Prosper Portland grants, but they aren't viable businesses. And that's the whole problem. They're not looking at a set of books that means they're viable for years. So they come in, get the grant money, and operate for a number of months, year, whatever their agreement contracts are, and then they're gone. 
You know, it seems like it would be easy for you both to throw up your hands and say, look, we don't live here anymore. (laughs) We're going to end up with heart attacks if we keep engaging in this work. The city officials are working against us. The loudest people, the fringe left, loudest people in the room are working against us. Um, Don Quixote is my idol, evidently. (laughs) Well, I mean, I'm just interested in... Why? What? What compels you to stay engaged? The people in Lens. That really is the it. The people believe we are doing some good, and hopefully, they continue believing that. Well, they I, really do. I, I, they, <laughs> I, I mean, they characterize it as, in fact, relying on you, which is frankly a have a must be a heavy burden. I mean, I know a lot of these people are working multiple, multiple jobs. They don't have time to engage in these issues or become, quote unquote, informed voters. I mean, they're just trying to get to work and live their lives. And, and I, they need somebody to do it, right? They need somebody to... I think that's what it is. Because Lentz, 20, over 20,000 people call Lentz home. And... At, at one point, I think I read somewhere, only something like 7 to 10 percent of Lentz voters vote in city elections. So it's easy. I've to, heard that. I've heard that they feel see. forgotten mm-hmm. and that they don't believe that their vote will make a difference. Yeah. Right. Because the they feel like the city doesn't care about them anymore. And I think there's a lot of non-English speaking people in Lentz because when we were doing the, the Thanksgiving turkey things, a lot of those families at the school referred to us were non-speaking. The parents didn't speak English. The kids did. What was the Thanksgiving turkey thing? We oh, did? we were doing that on yearly. And last year we did gift cards. But what we were doing was uh, we picked 25, I think, the first year. The second year, it was like 50 families. I would contact the local schools and see who fell belong below the you know, poverty line or right on the poverty line, and we would, we would box up complete Thanksgiving dinners and deliver them to these families. And, and we didn't really have any standards for that. We just we contacted the local schools and said, you know, we have X number of turkey dinners that we'd like to provide to needy families. Can you give us a list? And so they'd provide the list. And uh, I think a lot of them came from the, the is it Head, Head Start? Oh, Head Start was one of them. Kelly's, Kelly's school wouldn't respond. Right. Um, Oliver P. Lance, and then the other one is right on the edge. It's a David Douglas, but it's right on the edge of Lance, and I can never remember the name of it. But yeah, I contacted three or four schools in Lance to get the counselors. We I deal with the school counselors because they would know the students, and then we we distribute these these turkey dinners to those families. But a lot of them, like I said, the parents didn't speak English. It was the kids who spoke English. Yeah, because we had more interaction with the children in the household than the, the parents when it when it came to delivering the meal. Yeah, and but according to the city. These people who, and when you say don't speak English, I'm assuming these are not white people who don't speak English. These are probably black and brown people who don't speak English, most, Hispanic people. Most of them are Hispanic and Asians. Yeah. And, and these are people the city p- 
proclaims to care the most oh, about. Of course, of course. That's yes. why they stick everything in lens because they care so much about them. <laughs> and and yet these, you know, they they don't the. Your understanding is that these are the same people who feel like the city doesn't care about them. They can't navigate any the city, let alone figure out what the difference between Metro and Multnomah County is, and they probably don't have time. Yeah. To do any of that. Yeah. We hope that's the reason people aren't involved because that's kind of what we've run up against. We're, we're involved because we have the time and the inclination to try to figure out what people need to know to make an informed decision. I, I think most people are just too busy trying to make a living and try to, try to stay in their housing and maybe just don't have the time or energy to, but they really need to get out and vote because their votes do matter. And if we, if we continue doing things like we're doing, we're going to have the same results. I know that the LNLA gets a fair amount of vitriol online on places like like Twitter and Reddit, et cetera. Um, has there been any backlash directed at the two of you personally? I think it's all at the organization. I just came across a Twitter feed the other day I was telling David about. I didn't even remember putting it up. It was a survey to see if people felt that the unhoused were better protected and were allowed to do illegal things more than the house. And every comment under that survey was basically how mean we were to the housed or the unhoused. Because of course they didn't have different laws. Of course we're all treated the same. And it was, and it was like this other survey I put up about the, the Safe Rest Villages. This plan was in place probably at least three years ago, before COVID. It was called Housing to, what was it called? Uh, shelter, shelter to, to Housing Continuum. Continuum is what they call it. Shelter to Housing Continuum. And I put up a survey just to see if people were even aware of this process that the city was going to put in these tiny villages and all these neighborhoods without no notifying the citizens. And Almost out of 5,000 some responses on this survey I put up, every one of them said, oh, yes, we knew all about it. We're fine with it. And then they started putting them in, and then the neighbors started screaming, what's going on here? Why did the city have meetings about this? And I said, I tried my best to oh, put we, that out We there. got a lot of hate over that, we got that survey. Calls. And we it was really emails. a neutral survey, but it, but it was intended to educate people about what was coming. That was the intent. But we got phone calls, emails. I know where you live, and you're terrible <laughs> people. My understanding is that based on people I've talked to, not necessarily Todd and Juanita, but other people who are familiar with the LNLA, is that that survey was hijacked by these. I think it was. It was naysayers. A lot of that the, you're talking another, about. A lot of the responses were the same language, the same words. Yeah. Yeah. That's my understanding too. And that and then maybe it came from like I mean, I'd have to go back through my messages. Every once in a while I do get messages from Stop the Sweeps, you know, the, the far uh -huh. left moles, uh -huh. um, Stop the Sweeps, Antifa, Black Block, whatever, uh -huh. all sorts of whatever far left group. Uh, there's so many. Um, but I sometimes I do get messages from them 
that will, you know, an obvious, usually they don't give me their name or information. I certainly would never share it, but about here's what's, here was what's really going on here. And I don't know their motive. I don't know if they're conflicted, if they're wondering if uh, their group that they're affiliated with really has pure intentions or, or if they're kind of fence sitters or what, or, or they're just sort of aging out of that kind of advocacy <laughs> that I, I mean, it does attract a certain age group, it seems like, like the, what, a fifth, I'd even say as young as 15, the 15 to what, 33-year-old crowd or something. And um, it seems like, or it seemed like what I was told is that that survey was literally hijacked, mm-hmm. that their their intention was to make it sound like the people in Lens knew about these, what are now called safe rest villages, and that they were th- would be thrilled to have them. Mm-hmm. Well, it's funny because that same evening that our, our meeting was, Erica Hurley was there, her daughter saw it on Snapchat, and her daughter was talking to her friends about these awful people in Lentz called the Lentz Neighborhood Livability Association, and Eric overheard her daughter speaking. She goes, what? Who are you talking about? I know those people. I know those people, yeah. It was funny that it got all the way over to, and we know Snapchat is for younger people. So how it got from where I posted it, which was on a MailChimp, survey site to Snapchat, I have no idea. And Commander Hurley is from Portland Police Bureau. She's the East, East Portland commander, yeah. How were you able to get in touch with her? Because I have received, and, and get her to be so involved, because I have received a lot of questions from listeners in various neighborhoods in Portland saying, we need a Commander Hurley. I mean, I talked to a man yesterday (laughs) who said, I have reached out to Central Precinct and they're telling me they don't have the time or the resources or the people to create a Commander Hurley for my neighborhood. And so everybody's dying to know uh, what it was that you did or how you were able to form this fabulous relationship with Commander Hurley and how, how these other neighborhoods can replicate it. I think it came through our neighborhood response team. I think they're the ones that hooked me up with Commander Hurley because we do these Coffee with the Cops, which I understand none of the other neighborhoods do either. In fact, it was kind of interesting. We've been doing them for years now. But when we first started them, it was basically because of our neighborhood response team And I thought, well, other people need to get connected with the police and see what they're really about. But actually, it was funny because the East Portland Neighborhood Office, when she heard about what we were doing, she said, this is wonderful. None of the neighborhood associations are doing this. Who said this? Commander Hurley said this? No, no. The neighborhood, the neighborhood, uh, East Portland Neighborhood Office, which is the coalition that handles the neighborhood associations. I got it. So every, just so everybody knows. Again, with the convoluted facade of Portland <laughs> yeah. government. So we've got these neighborhood associations that literally consist of elected officials that get money from the city that are sanctioned by the city, and they're they like the Lentz Neighborhood Association would be one, but not the LNLA. Who Shar and David, who are here today, are on the LNLA, which is a nonprofit because the. Lens Neighborhood Association is, is, you know, was not responding to their needs. So what's interesting about Portland government is then again, and this is all under now what's called the Office of Civic Life. Then there's a like a middle organization 
that interfaces between, is this correct? The interfaces yeah. between the Office of Civil, Civic Life yep. and the geographical neighborhood associations. Correct. And like, for instance, mine is Southeast Uplift. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're saying that yours would be, what's it called again? East Portland? East Portland, Portland neighborhood, neighborhood Office. There you go. Okay. And so then there's this other layer of government with, within these this Office of Civic Life and that that person is like the representative of a coalition of neighborhood associations that re- reports to the Office of Civic Life, right? Yeah. Yep. Yes. Yep. Okay. And so that person who's right above the uh, neighborhood associations of which Lentz is one of ha- ha- says, loved what you two were doing. Right. But did they know that you, was this back when before the LNLA existed? No. No. Oh, so they love what this, you two are doing, but you have nothing to do with the Office of Civic Life. Exactly. But this person was interested in what? Uh, learning more about your methods so that the neighborhood associations under them could she, use them? She started coming to our coffee with a cop because the neighborhood association doesn't do it. So she started coming to our coffee with a cop because she loved what we were doing, but we are, yes. It's, it's all very convoluted, <laughs> you can imagine. But yeah, these are the same people that disowned us back in the day when we first started because we were too nimby. No, not no, nimby, not, not aggressive. But well, that's what they would say. Well, that's, yeah, that's what, they, what they, would they, they would put us at. But we 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 didn't go along with the city's agenda. Basically, yeah, you weren't just rubber stamping what exactly, the city wanted to exactly. do. Exactly, so, and in fact, you were critical of what the city was doing. Very critical, and we still are. But yeah, no, she actually came to our meeting, and and she actually, I can talk to her anytime I want. She she loves what we do with our association, but the neighborhood association isn't functioning enough. They'll support them because they have to, right? <laughs> but I right. think I think. To, to actually say she supports them with her whole heart, I would say she doesn't. I don't know that, but I would just say she she's there for them, and she supports them because she has to. But as far as agreeing with their policies or what they do, I don't know. She I seems quite them. enthusiastic she, about she, what we're she doing. Loves, What's her she name? loves us. Josea, if I can t- pronounce her last name, it's J-O-S-E-E. I'll see if I can I can get J O S E E is the first name. Yeah, right. Josea. Yeah. But it's pronounced Josea. Yeah. Yeah, I don't even have her last name. And it's name. E- she's from the East Portland East Portland neighborhood office. Neighborhood office. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. Listeners who are interested might want to get in touch even if you're not in East Portland or the neighborhoods that would fall under the East Portland neighborhood office. You might want to get in touch with Josea, because she might know somebody from your middle management organization (laughs) between the Office of Civic Life and your neighborhood who is sympathetic to these ideas and can maybe help you facilitate some of this. And it sounds like you all were doing Coffee with a Cop for a while. Was that already happening? No, that probably wasn't happening when you moved in. When did that start? Probably a year after we started our organization in 2017. The, so the LNLA started copy, Coffee yeah. with a Cop. It's a, national, it's a national thing. I got an email from the national headquarters of Coffee with a Cop, and I thought, well, this is a great idea. I didn't even know that was a national organization. I think it's, I think it's a yearly thing on October 5th, 
and that's when we have our next Coffee with a Cop, by the way. Yeah. So I don't know if they looked it up, but I think October 5th is a national day. They do Coffee with a Cop, and the national, they only do it yearly. And, and our meetings are, they're not really affiliated with that organization, but we just, we borrowed from the idea, well, this is a great idea. Yeah, why reinvent the wheel? Yeah. 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 So... You, the LNLA started doing Coffee with a Cop, and how often do you do these? We do it as often as they're available. I try to do it every other month, but they weren't available, so they set it for October 5th. So our next one's October 5th. And who do you interface with? Is it East Precinct? East Precinct. East Precinct. East Precinct Command. And Erica Hurley hasn't been available for quite a while because she's being drawn to all of the all the other precincts for training and all kinds of things. So basically it's been her, her upper management that come, her commanders, her sergeants, her lieutenants. They yep. come to our coffee with a cop. So did you put this together, yeah. Char, Coffee with a Cop? Char put it together. And then how did you figure out who to call at East Precinct? Did you just call up the precinct and say, hey, I want to talk to, I, I'm part of a neighborhood group and I want to talk to somebody who can um, help us facilitate? It started with the neighborhood response team. If they know how to get a hold of their neighborhood response team, they will put them in touch with their upper command. Didn't the neighborhood response team go away with the defunding, though? No, we still have one in East Portland. You do? Yeah. Okay. We still so what one. we need to do, anybody out there listening who wants to start these Coffee with a Cop meetings in their neighborhood organization or in their nonprofit, let's say, like Jessie Burke, her, her organization, Old Town, is also a nonprofit. It is not a neighborhood association that is under the Office of Civic Life. So if you have one of these organizations, or I bet if you're just a concerned citizen, call up your precinct, whatever precinct your neighborhood falls under, and um, find out who the neighborhood response team head is. Is that right? Yeah, that's how we started. But see, we had those contacts. Because the neighborhood response team used to come out on their quads and drive around the neighborhood so you knew who your neighborhood response team was. And you and, had those business cards and those contacts. And honestly, that that is how we got to know the folks in the police department because you see an officer pulled over somewhere doing paperwork. A citizen can walk up to them and if they, you know, do it judiciously and talk to them. And I, I've... It's person-to-person -person interaction. Police are not the enemy. They're really out there doing a really hard job to protect our neighborhoods. And I, I would say this to anyone, um, take the opportunity to tell a police officer that you appreciate the work they do. They don't hear it enough. And, and well, I think they hear the, I, I happen they to know the that they hear the opposite here in Portland. Every opportunity you do builds builds roads between you and the police, and then they're who they're who you need when something really bad happens. And uh, there is no substitute for making that human interaction with a police officer that works in your neighborhood. I, think I wish we had community policing. The day may come. Did you we see had that it one? in the past. I did see that. It, um, there's a, we're looking right now at a, a construction, uh, an electronic construction sign that would be up, that might be up saying slow construction ahead and instead it says fuck the police. Where was that? Was that in Lentz? I don't know where it was. Yeah, I saw that too, though. It was yeah. on like the WTF yeah. Portland yeah. feed or something. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's definitely this culture. I don't know if you all feel it, but there's definitely a culture in Portland here 
that we need to be afraid of the police. Yeah. We need to stay away from the police. They're going to kill us if we try to talk to them. Um, they're out to kill us all. They're 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 just running around unfettered with these guns and just stay really far away. And in fact, I, you know, I I a lot of acquaintances I have. I mean, these people are buying into this narrative that the police are scary and not to be dealt with and to be shunned and uh, frankly would like to live without them. But what's so interesting is if you look at the data, allegedly this is all in the interest of protecting black people. Portland doesn't have a lot of them. But if you look at the data, my understanding is black people want, I mean, they don't enjoy being over-policed and they would like that to change, but they want police. Well, you know what's really funny? Years ago, we were at an East Portland Action Plan, and they were putting up a new... What, what is that, East, East Portland? Portland Action Plan? That's the one in Southeast Portland that gets grants to help nonprofits in East Portland do good for the East Portland area because there's never been enough money given. Again, with the layers and yes, layers yes, of organizations yes, yes. and nonprofits. Yes. But anyway, so they they were putting up, I think, it, I don't know if it was a Rose CDC, but one of the property pimps were putting in housing in the Cully neighborhood, I believe it was Cully, it was um, for immigrants and refugees, okay? The police came out to introduce themselves to the people that were moving into this complex. The people that were running the program told them to leave because these people were scared to death of police people or people in that position. And I thought that is so criminal. So how are these people ever gonna connect and make any kind of connection that these are not the bad people when they're training them right when they get to our country that these are the bad people? I, 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 but the, everybody in the East Portland Action Plan were all, oh, Ray, Ray, yeah, this is a good thing. Tell them to leave, they're bad people. And I mean, if you have these organizations that are being funded by the city that is pushing that propaganda, how is it ever going to change? Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I feel like it's cultural now, and I'm I'm concerned that we're not going to be able to walk that back. I don't know how we how we walk that back. I don't. I don't either. That's why we don't live. Right. No, I understand. That's why you don't live here anymore. <laughs> hey, does have you has Commander Hurley talked about? Have any police that you've talked to? said anything about their ideas about how to how we walk back this narrative that they're all out to kill us and that we need to dis- to distrust them fear them view them with suspicion you know it's never come up in conversation when we have our coffee with a cop most of the people just want to be heard what's going on in their neighborhood and it really does help if people want to come to our coffee with a cop it's totally open to everyone it's not limited to lengths. I'm just putting that out there. So somebody could come to an LNLA meeting yes. w- uh, that's doing coffee with a cop, and they could talk about a neighborhood that's nowhere near Lens. Yes. They could talk about Hillsdale or something. Well, we've had people come in from Reed. We've had people come in from other neighborhoods. But what I'm saying is it's totally open to anyone who wants to talk to a police officer to get a feeling of what's going on, what they can do, but I and all our meetings are open the same way. If we have a speaker you're interested in, come in and join us. But no, the the a lot of the the conversations are geared around 
what they can do and like I was going to say it really helps to connect because there have been meetings where we have had a police officer there we discuss a problem in our neighborhood we go home that problem's gone like there was a vehicle years ago propped up on a tree and we mentioned it to the police officers at the meeting kids can climb under that vehicle that thing could drop right on their head we got home from that meeting that vehicle was gone so there are times when it helps they know you they'll respond to you and you know i i can't impress enough people need to come out and make their own decisions they need to quit listening to the narrative the city and these organizations are pushing and don't believe everything you hear on facebook find out for yourself <laughs> what do you what would you say to people who you know, we've talked about how maybe the solution is compelling mental health and drug rehab. You know, we had drug courts, those are gone now, where we were able to compel rehab and detox. But let's, we could talk about, let's talk about mental health for a minute. What do you say to people who say, yeah, those, those hospitals were rightly shut down because those people were poorly treated and there's no oversight? What would you say to that? they need to revamp them. No, there was some serious issues with the mental hospitals with shock treatment and lobotomies and all that went on with the older hospitals, but it's kind of like defunding the police, which they just want to get rid of. You need to change things, yes. You don't get rid of the facility. There are things they could have done to keep those in place and hire the right people. Change policies, yes, but don't just get rid of things. It doesn't work. We're, we're living through perfect, perfect evidence of that. No police means no law enforcement, which means lawlessness. No mental hospitals means people are living in your neighborhood on the street and you don't know whether they're there because they want to be or because they just don't know where they are. What, what do you think, I know we talked about how the city is, in, in our opinions, driven by feelings as opposed to data or metrics or, or common sense. Sure, or common sense. Or, or re, re, dealing with reality on reality's terms. Wouldn't, what's puzzling to me is wouldn't the city want to declare victory on something like this? I mean... It's just interesting that the city wouldn't want to start keeping data and metrics and engaging in some kind of program or plan to, I'm not talking about homelessness specifically, but it could be crime even, uh, could be homicide, could be gun violence, all these various myriad problems that we have that are real, real major problems. It's, it's so puzzling to me that they wouldn't want to change their ideology to actually figure out what would work or talk to people who, who've been able to fix things so that they can do a, a, you know, a victory lap on this. Have, have you listened to the mayor's speeches? He does claim victory. That's what's so disgusting about those speeches because every time he opens his mouth, he says what a great job they're doing with this or what a great job they're doing. Yeah, they with all that. do. I mean, they well, all that's do. what I'm saying. So yeah, they don't, they don't need to actually do anything because they claim they do it Anyway. But although those of us with our eyes open know that that's a lie, I mean, I think there's 
I think there's beyond the strange far left culture that has overtaken Portland. I do think that there's a, another reason that Sarah Iannarone, the self-declared, I'm, I'm, I am Antifa mm-hmm. mayoral candidate who ran against Ted Wheeler in the last mayoral election. I think there's a reason she came close to winning. And frankly, I think it's, and I know, I know these people. I think it's just because people wanted to vote for anyone except Ted Wheeler. Exactly. No, I agree with you. I, I think he is widely reviled. I, I have yet to mm-hmm. meet, I know Jesse likes him because she works with him, Jesse Burke, the owner of Society Hotel. But I, I have, besides Jesse, I have yet to meet a single person who is not a personal friend or a family member of Ted Wheeler's who thinks, forget doing a good job, who who thinks well of him at all. I mean, who doesn't actively hate him. If you mention his name, I don't care what part of the political spectrum you're on, fists clench. I mean, the... The, the far left is always doing Antifa-style Antifa graffiti, gas me Teddy, hang Ted Wheeler, kill Ted Wheeler. They're the ones who set his condo on fire. And I he, mean, it, it's everybody went, hates him. He went out in the street and walked with them, but he won't come to one of our meetings. Oh, he, oh, he doesn't. He has never come to an LNLA meeting. He did at the very beginning when we first started, but after that first meeting, he will not respond to anything. Part of the problem with having a meeting with, with Wheeler is that it has to be scripted. He he wants all of the questions that are gonna be posed in writing before he'll even consider attending a meeting. We won't do business that way. And that, that may be part of the issue, other than the fact that he just doesn't like us. You're saying that at your meetings, you expect your speakers to be able to engage in a Q&A. Correct. And and he refuses. He he wants to give a speech and walk out. Well, no. Or, if you if you if you propose the Q and A before he comes, and one person from the meeting is leading the gang and not allowing the audience mm-hmm. to ask the actual questions or get off task, he's fine. He wants a scripted moderator. Yes. 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 And the. The other thing is, is the city has massive amounts of data. They keep, they keep data on everything. But for the ordinary citizen like us, we'd, we'd be willing to, to dive deep into it. You have to sue them to, to get the information. I don't think there's any other way that you could ever get to the data of where the money goes, how, it, you know, how effective it was. They've got to know. Is it, is it possible? that they don't either keep or share metrics on that because then they'd be accountable and held responsible for, for the failure. Then it couldn't be, don't believe your lying eyes, believe what we tell you, because then what they're telling you is commensurate with your eyes. It's commensurate with what you're seeing in this city filled with lawlessness, people splayed out in the gutter, and garbage. Yeah, I, you're smiling. David's smiling. <laughs> I, I just bet they know. You think they do keep data on I this. think they do keep data. And they hide it. I do. Has anybody done a public records request for this? Any information people have ever gotten out of the city has only been by a public records request that they had to take to court to get. And do we know if they've ever, if anyone has ever received 
data or public records in regard to homeless metrics? I don't know. Okay, so if anybody out there is listening who knows about that or who's willing to do <laughs> something like that, I think that's something that we'd be, I, I, I'm certainly happy to help any way I can and willing to um, try to assist you with that because I think we're all hungry for that information. Um, I, I wonder, I want to talk for a minute about the From the Crotch, which is, is that the name of the blog? That's on the, the name of the blog, yeah. So if you go to the LNLA website, the blog title is From the Crotch, and Shara's told me she did not name it that. Somebody else named it that. And um, I know that Willamette Week and another number, Mercury, of course, and a number of other uh, free weeklies here in Portland that lean... I'd say with the exception of somebody like Nigel Jock was not just left, but far left, have really vilified the LNLA of, for the title of the blog as, as from the crotch. Why keep the name? I mean, tell me, tell me a bit about that. Like, let's say, okay, you didn't come up with it, but it is your blog, right, it Char? Is, it is our blog. So why keep the from the crotch name if there's all this media attention on why it's so allegedly bad and vilifies homeless people, I suppose they would say? It was appropriate. And if you read a lot of the blog, if you actually read the posts, you will not probably find the word homeless in any of them. It's talking about criminal elements. It's talking about drug addicts. It's not vilifying homeless. It's vilifying the type of behavior that the person who wrote these has experienced personally. In his own backyard. So it's like the name came from him. I appreciate his, in me, it's a sense of humor because we started calling our part of town from, from the armpit. Because if you look at a body, the legs and the feet are probably in downtown Portland, and he figured he was in the crotch. And that's why it came to that, and, and I have no problem with that name, and I, I laugh that people want to vilify the name, but obviously it, it's gotten us a lot of attention. <laughs> it, it is the most popular part of our website, just in the metrics of number of views. It. <laughs> There, there are more views to that, that part of our website than all the rest of the website put together. And the rest of our website is informational. We have a who to call list, which has hundreds of numbers to call if you need help. We've got another page that has recovery centers, places to contact, contact if you want to get into recovery and get help. I mean, we have all kinds of other information on that website. The fact that they're drawn to that tab, it just makes me laugh. Well, the funny thing is, it sounds to me, based on the data that you keep on the blog and the number of visitors to the blog, that it's kind of had this, you know, this Streisand effect, if you will, right? Where it's those attempts to the phenomenon that occurs where you're trying to hide or remove or censor some information. And there's this unintended consequence of raising awareness about it. Um, I think that was when she... she uh, tried to suppress the California Coastal Records Project's information about her clifftop residence in Malibu, and instead everybody just started typing in Barbara Streisand's house in Malibu into uh. Google. Um, 
<laughs> I, you know, maybe maybe all publicity is good publicity for that's the what, LNLA. That's what I've heard. That's what I've heard. And there's another tab on there. What was it? The the letter the attorney wrote. I don't know if anyone's read that one. We had an attorney contact us and say, "I need to write. I would I would be willing to do anything for your group. What can you name?" And I said, "If you could write a letter about the Safe Res Village." He did an awesome letter. Wait, was that Don Courtney? Yep. 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 I know him. Yep. He's great. He's supposed to be... I should uh, see if I can get in touch with him. He uh, he was in India. Yeah, he was. And I think he's back. I think he's back. I need to get in touch with him. He, was, yeah. he and I were supposed to get together when he got back. Yeah. And he is just one of the best human beings No, he planet. was great. He reached out to us and said, I, I like your website. Is there anything I can do to help you? And I said, if you could just write us a letter about these safe And he wrote a beautiful he did. letter. Oh, it was like five pages long. I shortened it, put a tab on the first page of our website. If anyone has a problem with these safe rest villages, click on this tab. We'll send an email to Dan Ryan. <laughs> I don't know if anybody did, but it was to help people protest against the Safe Rest Village because we have no communication with the city as far as what they're doing in that neighborhood other than we're getting a Safe Rest Village. No good neighborhood agreement, nothing. Nothing. They aren't giving us anything. So it's like they aren't really, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, so Don told me that he is actually, or was, he was a resident of yes. Lentz yes. before he, he moved to it's, it's India. It's mentioned in that letter. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He brings and, that out. He was mugged. Yes. Well, I, I mean, among many, many other things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, he's he has experienced all the kinds of criminal elements that you mentioned, and 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 he's very. I mean, this idea that Don Courtney's some kind of NIMBY is absolutely silly. He was he was friends with some of the homeless mm -hmm. people that were living in Lens, like genuinely friends. Like he would let them. Um, Take sh I think he even said take a shower in his house. I mean, stuff that I think a lot of Portlanders no. who consider themselves compassionate or, <laughs> and are um, are pro stop the sweeps type people. I don't see them inviting these people into their homes yeah. to shower or really do anything. Yeah, their compassion ends at their front door or maybe their front gate, I think. I think that's right. And, you know, it's so interesting that you talked about this shelter to housing continuum. Continuum. Mm -hmm. That's right. Because <laughs> so this was this ordinance and it's actually ordinance. The Safe Rest Village Ordinance is 190478, if anybody wants to look it up. And it's characterized as an emergency ordinance. It was formally passed in uh, 2021. And it's fascinating because they wrap in COVID language mm. into this ordinance. But I'm learning now from you, Char, and I didn't realize this previously, that this thing was a long time in the making. Before COVID. And COVID was really just a convenient way to sell this thing to the public. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. The COVID excuse. Yeah. It covers defense. all kinds of... I call it the defense. Defense, yeah. <laughs> covers all kinds of things that the city doesn't want to do or doesn't want to deal with, oh, it's because of COVID. Right. The, the, the people are homeless because of COVID. Buildings right. are boarded up because of COVID. Businesses have closed because of COVID. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to return to work because of COVID. And I want to know what you all think about 
this uh, idea of, I, I'm sure you've heard about this, city workers are refusing to come back to the city physically. <laughs> I love it. I, I, I mean, I, I guess they were ordered to come back one day a yeah. week, but I talked to somebody the other day who just got a job with the city, and I said, well, I've heard you got to come in once a week. And she said, well, they, they don't enforce that. They specifically told me it's not enforced. Personally, if I had a job with the city and I told them I wasn't coming to work, I think I would have been fired. <laughs> well, in your city, that might be right. But you now live in a functional well, city. Well, I'm just saying, if, if I still lived in Portland, I worked downtown Portland for years. But if I told my you didn't employer... Work for, you worked in the city. Well, I worked in the city. The but city. If, if I told my employer, sorry, I'm not coming into the office. You know, and it's interesting to me that... Um, the city has gone so far in accommodating people's to Works. be able to work from home. You cannot call any city agency and get anyone to answer the phone. What the heck are they doing? Is it all automated? I don't even no. know. It's, it's voicemail. Yeah, it's all. It all goes to voicemail, and more than likely, you will not get a return call. Now, when I call, when I call the city and someone answers, I go, "Oh my God, you answered your phone!" And they like. What are you talking about? It's like nobody answers their phone. Yeah. <laughs> so it's all kind of gone the way of uh, everywhere else that we're dealing with now, from everything from like Amazon to pharmacies to when you want to make a return at some particular company or the cell phone company or Comcast. I mean, it's just, it's all a voicemail automated. Yep. You can't get a real person on no, the phone. No, you don't get rid and they don't return your call. That's even worse. I, I might have gotten two return calls because I call people a lot for our meetings and everything else. But if I, if, yeah, if I get a return call, I'm almost like, who are you and why are you calling me? <laughs> Yeah. Right, because you don't know. You yeah. you don't even have a memory, given yeah. how many people you try to get in touch with yeah. on a day-to-day -day basis, who, who might be calling you back. And it's probably yeah. such a rare occurrence. It's very rare. Mm -hmm. And I don't understand it, because we have our landline forwarded to our cell phones. So if I'm not in a meeting like this right now, I take every call. And we've gotten calls from, what was that city that called me the other day that needed help? It wasn't even in Lance. It was... Towards the coast. A lady called me and she lived in a mobile home park. Oh, yeah. yeah Her yeah, husband yeah. had just passed away from COVID and she needed help. But I can't remember the city. It wasn't even near Lens. When we get calls from other neighborhood neighborhoods because their neighborhood associations don't do anything. So, but it was another city. I mean, it was like me living in Malala and they were calling me from Canby. Yeah, I was Wanted to know if the, the Lens neighborhood livability could help them. <laughs> I mean, that's, I think that says a lot. But there's no one there to help. I mean, no one has phone numbers. No one answers their phones if they have a phone well, number. Well, no one answers 911 for yeah. them, and yeah. no one answers non-emergency. Yeah, and, and, and the neighborhood associations, you go find me a neighborhood association that has a number listed that you can call. Our number is on our website. Shar answers the phone, regardless. <laughs> of where you're calling from. Yeah. Well, I think that's important for everybody to understand that if you want to reach out to the Lentz Neighborhood Livability Association, you can do that. It's We're right there. there on the website, and Char will answer the phone. Yeah, we attended a uh, eviction notice meeting for a neighbor who called one evening. He was almost in tears because of his neighbors down the street. That house is still there. Those people are still there, but we set an eviction court for 
half a day waiting for that case to be heard. And of course the judge, well, have you talked to Nikki? Have you guys made an agreement? I think you guys need to sit down with a mediator. So there was no eviction. There's still no eviction. She was supposed to be out last month, the 31st. She's still there. Because mm -hmm. I keep on top of it, but, but this poor, poor gentleman's called me and he just wants to be heard. I know. I can't do anything for you, Jimmy. I, I really feel for you. I wish I could I'm trying more. to understand. He wants someone to stay in the house or he wants someone no, evicted? He, he wants someone He owns a house two houses down from a house that's become a squatter house. The landlord knows it's a squatter house. He's been trying to get her out for two years. Yeah, yeah the current resident is not on the lease. The, the, the one who actually rented the home from him was her, was her boyfriend, was who, passed her boyfriend away. who passed away. I think it's almost impossible to get an eviction. I do. Oh, yeah, is. I agree. In Multnomah County. No, he had one on the books that they were supposed to evict her on August 31st. She was supposed to move out. She agreed to move out. The neighbor who was calling me said they brought in a U-Haul truck. Looked like they were moving. He said two days later they were all back. <laughs> I mean, mm -hmm. what's interesting is you hear these narratives, particularly from the Joint Office of Homeless Services, about how people are being evicted because they lost their job in COVID or they mm -hmm. got COVID and they couldn't work and they were evicted and now they're homeless. And that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with the fallout of the pandemic. That's uh -huh. what homelessness is about. Uh -huh. And I just think, well... That's a lie. <laughs> the, how is it possible then that squatters can take over a house in Southeast Portland and it makes international news? Uh -huh. And when the guy who owns the house comes back, they beat the crap out of him and everybody throws up, up their hands and says, I don't know, we can't help you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I, I, it's just hard to believe that people are actually getting, and based on the what you just said, Char, it's just hard to believe that people are actually getting evicted left and right around here. I can't see it. And there's a lot of tenant protections. Well, no, we went to the eviction court, and I would say 10, 15 cases were heard. Oh, yeah. We sat there the whole morning because you don't, there's a wide time slot that it will fall in. Two, it's a cattle call. That's two, right. Yeah. Two people, two people actually got a, a formal eviction notice to evict the tenant. Two. Out, out of, of how many? Uh, I think there were at least 15 cases heard right. that morning. So yeah, no, it's it's not an easy process, and I, I I'm just glad I'm not a landlord. <laughs> well, and when we shifting gears for a minute, when we first talked about having you all come down here, uh -huh. you said, "Hey, we have concealed carry permits." Yes, and we, we're bringing our guns. Yes, because you don't come to downtown without a gun. We don't come to Portland without carrying. Portland period. Portland, Portland period. When did that start? 2017 is when I got my concealed carry permit because I worked downtown and I was taking uh, Max downtown and I saw what was going on the Max. I always made a point of sitting in the very back so I could see what was going, going on around me. And uh, I don't come to Portland without my concealed carry. What were you seeing that compelled you to get your concealed carry license? Um, what I was seeing is older people getting mugged, and I didn't want to become part of that statistic. It was pure and simple. I, I am not fearful. I just, I, I really didn't. And by it, mug, you would see somebody on the max sitting I, I there, have, and they'd say, "Give me your wallet." I, I did not personally see this, but um, 
Char saw just kind of a crazy, that, that's about the time that people were getting mugged on the uh, Max platforms and Gresham, getting attacked with baseball bats or clubs or whatever. And it just got me to thinking, you know, just to go to work, I, I don't want to become one of those statistics. You know, maybe it's unreasonable, but it was just a decision I made to, okay, I'm going to um, get a concealed carry permit. I joined a range so that I could become proficient with my tool, and uh, I always carry it. I, I don't when I'm out in Malala. It's a safe town. Well, it's funny because um, my brother and I were riding the max lines, and when they put the new line in to Milwaukee, so we would ride all the lines and check them all out. We went to Gresham once, and that entire car that we were on, those people were high-loaded. They, they were all on something. And my brother said, no, we are never taking the Gresham line again. <laughs> and that was when you got your concealed carry? No, I don't have a concealed carry. Oh, you don't? No, I don't, no. Char doesn't like guns, I don't like to be guns. honest. I don't like guns. <laughs> and so, David, what would you say to somebody who would say, hey, you're more, you're actually more likely to be to be killed with your own gun to be killed than for you to actually kill somebody who's trying to kill you? I, I've heard that statistic from someone I, I respect. Erica Hurley told us that. Oh, did she really? Yes. Yeah, yeah, one of our meetings, she said, statistically, nationwide, a private citizen who's not been trained, who's carrying a weapon, is more likely to get killed with their own weapon than they are to shoot someone else. And so what caused you to take in that information from this person who you obviously really hold in the highest regard, who's a, who's a Portland <laughs> Police Bureau commander, and go, yeah, I'm not going to be one of those people? Well, I think it's the, the pause. The people who get shot by their own gun, pause. Yeah. They don't just Is that true? use it. That's true. How do you how do you know that, David? Because there's the police have the same training. Closer than twenty feet, uh, you're going to get you're going to get hurt. So it's kind of the twenty foot range. If somebody's coming out with at you with a knife, you better first of all, if you're carrying a gun, you have to be willing to unholster it. And second of all, if, if you're going to do that, you have to be willing to use it. And it, it, it's a hard thing to say and a hard thing to face, but it's, um, at that point, it has to be them or me or you're going to get, you will end up paying the consequence. Unfortunately, you haven't had to use it yet. No. But anytime it, you come into Portland be, City Limits, you bring it. Yes. It'll be the worst day of my life if I ever have to, but it, I'm not going to be the victim that Pure and simple, that's it. And I just want to make clear for everybody who's listening, the LNLA is not some kind of nonprofit grift organization. Char and David, you both are completely unpaid, right? Correct. Completely. Completely. No no one in the organization gets paid for for their volunteer work. And where does the money go that you do raise? I know it goes does it go to like let's say the turkey program, the trash cleanup? So when we first started, our first project was probably more than we should have chewed off. We basically rehabbed an entire house for this woman. We did get some donations like free fencing. We had the help of the church that we partnered with come in. One of the, the neighbors had a guy with a skidster came in and cleaned their yard. 
so we we put in flooring, we replaced siding, we I don't know what else did we do on Betty's so we tore out the kitchen, we replaced all our kitchen yeah, cabinets. All you did all this yourselves or you yes. used it to hire yeah, these, a contractor? No, 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 this was all done with volunteer work. Yeah, it wasn't us alone we just organized it right. we have a lot of volunteers we have a lot project. of volunteers but that's where the money goes so what we do is we spend the money on materials for those kind of projects we do yard work we spend material on on tools if we need tools for yard work we um, buy the bags the vests the grabbers for the cleanups so the money goes to supplies running the website we have a hose for the website a low-cost house. Low-cost, very square space is great. Um, and, and a domain name. So basically our cost is our filing fees, our website. But yeah, it's all, it's all cost. It's all organizational cost or material cost or doing these remodel jobs. And we haven't done any since, and that one kind of wore us out. But uh, we, So I built a set of stairs to someone's front porch, and that was just a volunteer thing because they had an unsafe, unsafe set of stairs. Yeah. What else have we done? It's on our website. A lot yeah. of the things that, that, but that's where the cost goes. That's where the money goes that is donated to us by West Rock. West Rock Recycling, we made a agreement, a business agreement with them years ago because the neighbors weren't happy with all their trash being blown out of their recycling facility. And they've cleaned a lot of that up, but they donate to us on a monthly basis to come in and once a week, we pick up the miscellaneous garbage out of yards and trash that gets blown out of their recycling center. We what do you mean blown out of the, what happens exactly? Well, the recycling center compresses all your paper, all your recycling, all your recycling goes to this facility right. in Portland. But it's kind of an open warehouse building with open doors at either end. On and so wind stuff is flowing out of this? It, it's on windy days, it blows yeah. out into the neighborhood. And it used to drive the neighbors crazy. And uh, we kind of, <laughs> we got drafted for those wanted for want of a better word, it ended up making it a, a weekly weekly thing that we did for them for the donation they make to us. That's where all of our operating funds come from. I think that's great. Contract. I mean, that's a good So solution. if anyone wants to come out and meet us, we're at West Rock every Saturday except, except the second Saturday of the month, 8 to 9. And it probably will change when it starts getting darker in the morning. But right now we do 8 to 9 every Saturday except for that second Saturday when we do Neighbor to Neighbor, which is another program that's all volunteers with the church. It is now called New Hope, but we go out and help elderly disabled neighbors with yard work, housework, whatever they need done. And that's another all volunteer-based organization through the church. It's not a religious thing. It's just to help the neighbors. And they have tried to do outreach in other neighborhoods to try, try to get other neighborhoods to adopt the program because all these neighborhoods have elderly disabled people who can no longer do their own work around their homes and it's to keep them in their housing as long as possible. So it's a great program, you can look that up too. What if somebody wants you to open up your books and like 
prove all this. Would you be open to do doing something like that? They are totally open. They're if already anybody, open. Yeah, if anybody, right now we have signed participating members, and every month I send them the monthly expenses. So if anybody's interested, they can look at our set of books that show where all the money goes. And we, I keep it on QuickBooks. So I have a set of books if you want a profit and loss. Earlier when we were talking about Charlie Hales, then Mayor Charlie Hales in 2016, who started the quote-unquote safe sleep program mm -hmm. and how this sort of deterioration of Portland started, you talked about how he had opened up the spring water. And I don't remember, was that literally a official position of his that he was opening up the spring water for homeless people? Yes, because he wouldn't move them. There were no sweeps back then. So the people that were, and I think there was like 500, it was only 500 people, well, I hate to say only, but it was yeah. 500 people back then that lived along the spring water. And he basically told the city employees, you are not sweeping it, you're not going in there. I don't even know if they went in and cleaned at that time. Yeah, I've been meaning to go back and research this because I, I believe it was a spat between him and the remaining city council members. Because there there was some kind of political fight that that was the precedent for this. Okay, that's a good point. So if anybody knows about that, please let us know, and we'll go ahead and look into that too. And anything we find, I'll go ahead and cite on our in our show notes. What do you all know and think about this uh, program that Joanne Hardesty kind of takes credit for called Portland Street Response? <laughs> Well, your laugh, David's laughing. Well, we had them at our meeting early on, and it was kind of interesting because the hours they were going to operate was during the day, and we tried to tell them that is not the hours that there are going to be issues with the unhoused. They start their day at 10 p.m. and run through the morning. No, 10. 10 no, no, that's home. Oh, you're talking no. about the, the criminal homeless. The, the homeless okay, run their, their time from 10 p.m. until the morning hours. And what are they doing between 10 p.m. and the morning? That's when they're having their fights, their arguments, their criminal activity. That's when they're marauding the neighborhoods. You can look at any of these ring cameras that people put up, and you can see them walking around their neighborhoods during the early morning hours or after 10 p.m. So you're saying that's when the, these this population is active yes. and to the extent Street Response, Portland Street Response could provide any benefit to the Lentz neighborhood, yes. it would be during the hours of 10 p.m. and the, the early morning, what, 4 or 5 in the morning? Yes, exactly. And, but they don't, they are not open they don't, then. they don't operate. In fact, when they came to our first meeting, I think it was like 8.15 to six or five o'clock p.m. And we tried to tell them this, well, according to our statistics, this shows when we're having the most phone calls for this kind of activity. So from what we've seen of Portland's group response, and we haven't seen anything now, the guy who writes for the crotch, he actually had an incident out from his house. There was a veteran that was parked in a van that was broken down. He said Portland Street Response came out three times, gave him some water and some breakfast bars. The guy needed, I think he needed a tire repaired. He had something wrong with his engine. Finally, the neighbors got together, went down to the, the local on-the-corner uh, repair shop. They came in with their own volunteer time, fixed the guy's van, fixed the tire. 
he was able to drive out of the neighborhood. But as far as Portland Street response, they did nothing for this vet. And so I, I know they come out and they make an appearance at Lent Park with the PDX Saints. So they, they're looking good on paper. They're great, doing, they're great at photo ops. Yes, they're doing all this great stuff. But I, to be honest, I don't know. People have said, even Chris at the fire station said they are taking some of the calls away from them. But he says now we're just getting calls of a different nature. So, you know, I guess they are doing some good to some people. But what again, do you base that on? I haven't heard anything positive. Well, that's that's my problem. I'm only basing on what what, what they say, what or? I've seen. No, not what they say. No, I'm not going by. Oh, you've seen them do good things. I haven't seen them do anything. I personally have not seen them do anything. I'm just going by what Chris at the fire station has told us. I see that they have done some good at taking some of the calls away from the fire department, which is good. And Chris is a firefighter at the neighborhood he's, fire he's, station. He's the captain. Of okay. The, okay. Yeah. Chris Starling. He's well, the I captain. think they work out of the fire stations, right? They Portland do, Street but response? out here somewhere. I got it. So yeah. they not, were never in Lentz, which is really funny. It took them 20 to 30 minutes to even get to Lentz if they got a call for Lentz. So they were down here north, north somewhere stationed. And it would take them that long to get out to Lentz when they got a call for for a Lentz resident or person. But when okay. we first had them to our meeting, they were seeing two people a day. And that was such a success yes. that, that they tripled, quadrupled the budget and expanded it citywide. Yeah, I, I read about that. And I read that <laughs> I, I they're trying to get the more. sarcasm. Yeah, I did, and you're laughing. <laughs> I, I actually read that the, the Portland Street response is trying to get more money. Yeah. And oh, I yeah. think it's, I don't imagine that it would be a problem for them. No. Oh, no. Well, I think the first year was 4,000, or 4 million, I mean, four the, first, the first year. And that was with four employees plus the two office staff. So they had a total of six employees. Yeah, this is, so I've got OPB, uh, May 13th, 2021, 5.7 billion dollar city budget does not fully fund Portland Street response. And at that point, that, so this was 2021, uh -huh. they actually said that, that, that Mayor Wheeler wanted $5.7 billion budget and then would take a million out of that and fully fund a pilot in Lentz Mm -hmm. But Hardesty, who takes credit for Portland Street Response, and this is all from the article, had asked for $3.6 million. The amount she says she needs to bring the program citywide with six teams. It says that the Portland Street Response is currently limited to one team in Lentz, but it sounds like you don't know where that is. Well, they've never been stationed in Lentz. No, they were, they were the pilot program was for Lentz, which... It's really funny how we even got them because when they did all their projection, they based it on downtown. And then they figured, well, they weren't big enough to do downtown, so they put them out in Lentz. But they've never been stationed in Lentz. They've always no. been in North somewhere. I think, I think North Portland. So there is not, I just want to be clear, geographically speaking, yes. there is no one from Portland Street Response in the physical location of Lentz? Nope. Nope. So when they say a team in Lentz, what they really mean is 
people in North Portland that are charged with responding yeah. to Lentz. Yep. Right. That's so misleading. So their team gets in their van and drives to Lentz, and then then the team is in Lentz. Obviously, that this is not this information is not front and center, journalistically, or certainly not information that the city is providing. Certainly not information Joanne, who's who's taken credit for the program, is providing to anybody. And then, of course, in March March twenty eighth, twenty twenty two, here's another one. Uh, this is from Willamette Week. It says Portland Street Response expands citywide. Mm-hmm. But the 24-7 service is still on hold. And the art, this is from March 28th, 2022. The article begins by saying, more than a year after the launch of its pilot program in the Lentz neighborhood. But you're telling me the pilot program was not in the Lentz neighborhood. Well, well the pilot their, their program ser- was. It, their service area is Lentz. It's just that Yeah, but work. they're all located yeah. in North Portland. Yes, yeah. yes. That's not a program in the Lentz neighborhood. No, we, if, we, we, asked, yeah, we asked Chris why they weren't in his firehouse. <laughs> yes, that's right. And, that's, and, and when you were talking about Chris, I thought, oh, they must be operating out of Chris's firehouse. Nope. I think there was probably room there for it, but that, in the city's wisdom, it, they didn't lo- have them locate there. And my understanding is they're trying to compare... That Joanne and and these pro Portland Street Response people tried to compare Portland Street Response to Cahoots in Eugene, um, which is supposed to be a citywide alternative to armed police. I don't know. Are you all familiar with Cahoots? Yes, we are. And they're a nonprofit, and they yes. don't run with the city. Now they're getting. I understand city funding, but originally they were all nonprofits. That's right. Yeah, and, so, and what they go ahead. What, what Portland base theirs on is CAHOOTS, which still at that time was run by a nonprofit that had no city funding. And, oh, we want to be just like them, but uh, no, it's not going to be just like that because it's run by the city and city uh, hierarchy and red tape and everything costs much more, but wages are much more for city jobs than they are for nonprofits. So you're saying, David... Well, and Char, too, that that Cahoots, to the extent it was successful, was only successful because it was not part of the city. Correct. And it was Correct. not it was not beholden to the city. It was not responsible for reporting to the city or doing the city's bidding. It could operate how that nonprofit chose to operate it. Correct. Correct. I don't know what it is now because they're they're. The CAHOOTS program is largely city-funded, is my last read on it. Well, it's kind of like We Heart Seattle. The reason they're so effective yeah, is yeah. they don't have to answer to the city. Well, you know, the funny thing is, I know Andrea Suarez, and she has, who runs We Heart Seattle, and she has tried to work with the city, uh-huh. and they have told her to go F herself. Yeah. She was moving a, a vacant tent. The guy had moved out. And, of course, the neighbors right next to him, oh, you can't do that, got in her face, started screaming at her. It's like, she, she, she is Didn't great. Didn't stop her. She Didn't just stop said, her. She said, there's nobody here. This tent's abandoned. We're, we're taking it out of here. And they did. They loaded it up with the uh-huh. other garbage they picked up. 
She's but, incredibly brave. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Because, you know, I'm told by listeners from PPB that every all these homeless people are armed. They're either armed with oh, guns are. that they, they find are. in cars when they, they try door handles, or they're armed with makeshift weapons. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't, you know, what what Andrea and Kevin do are is really important work, and the last thing I would yeah. want to do is dissuade them from doing yeah. it. But you know, one of the reasons that I frankly am not haven't walked alongside them is, um, you know, I, I and I'd be afraid for any but any civilian who did who who didn't have a handgun <laughs> like David and knew knew how to use it and not hesitate like David yeah. is. The, these these are unpredictable people yeah. on really serious new drugs. This 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 fentanyl is new. This mm-hmm. synthetic fentanyl, this P to P meth that that Sam Quinones wrote a Atlantic article about. I mean, this kind of stuff that they're on. This is not. These aren't people smoking marijuana yeah. and drinking, you know, tuning drinking. out. Right, right. And you should meet uh, Guardian Angels. She's great too. Who is this? Guardian Angels. Guardian Angels. She was at our last meeting. I haven't gotten it up yet. On I was working on it when we left home to okay. get it up. Okay, I will get in touch with this person. Yeah, she's another one that they don't carry any weapons. I mean, she made that, that quite that's clear. That's against their rules. Yeah, but she, she, she. I hope she's great. careful. Yeah, no. Does she so have jujitsu training. I mean, I, I think they have. They do have training because she talked about their training. They do go through self defense training. Good. So right. they were founded in New York, like back in the 70s or early 80s and there was a used to be a big portland chapter and i think they're down to three currently yeah but it with them it was safety in numbers because it it used to be a much larger group and they would just go walk through a neighborhood and they're they they really would stop and talk to the the unhoused folks and it's kind of kind of what we've seen is that Things don't get as bad in a neighborhood if there is somebody, first of all, just talking to the people because the the criminal element, I really think, scurries away if they think there's anybody watching. Our, our neighborhood here in Portland remained, even when there was a large camp down the hill, the the. It was. It just felt safe because we, we were out there at least once a week picking up the trash on the street. And when we stopped doing that, there's, uh, what's the latest count? 15 motorhomes on now. And it's just a, it's a big campground there. I know she walked with us the other night yeah. when she came to our meeting. We decided to walk down Nap and just check it out. But we're going to have a cleanup there on the 24th of this month. To at least pick up the, the garbage. So my understanding is that you all invited a retired director from the Union Gospel Mission to your meetings. And because he was retired, he was, a listener told me he was free to speak up about Multnomah County's handling of mental illness. Do you have any recollection of this? I remember Bill Stewart. That's Bill Stewart. Yeah, I remember of. Bill Stewart. Do I recollect? I, I'm sure he spoke his mind. <laughs> but to be honest, Exact wording, no. Yeah, so this listener, um, actually her name is Susie Lopez. She's a big fan of, uh-huh. of you all's, and she's um, she's been a real support to this podcast and to me personally. And she says that she listened to that meeting and that it was really interesting to hear somebody who was free of the county's thumb talk about 
the flaws in the system. And she said he's very old fashioned when it comes to trading addiction. In fact, he thinks the jail system is not a bad way to do it and to detox people. And and it might be it might that. enable people to hit their rock bottom and finally get 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 off the get the drugs out of their system and just get clear headed about uh, what what turning their life around. She said he had a lot of great stories. She said he did share how a politician's largest donor moved. He didn't mention which politician. And she said, you know, people should really be watching the LNLA meetings on YouTube because they don't have to drive there. And the meetings are no good. They're no BS with really good people. I mean, she she just thinks that, that you're doing a public service by putting those up. And I, I certainly agree. She also talked about a meeting, an LNLA meeting with a TriMet representative, August 11th, who talked about fentanyl and mentioned that TriMet is funding a study, not a lot of money, Mm -hmm. to study and determine the effects of secondhand fentanyl smoke. And they're partnering with the University of Washington. And when she said that, I couldn't, I just laughed out loud. I couldn't (laughs) help but laugh. I just thought, well, instead of publicly identifying fentanyl smoking on TriMet Mm -hmm. as a as a, a livability a emergency. And I mean, children, older uh, people, yeah. rock, they depend on yeah. public transit. Poor people. Yeah. I mean, the people the city says it, it, it's obsessed with. Yeah. They rely on public transit. Yeah. And, 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 and their own workers, their TriMet workers, are being apparently so being exposed to fentanyl smoke to the point where they have to, the city is paying effectively because it's TriMet. I guess in the city, it's Metro, right? Yeah, it's Metro. It, Metro, Metro is paying to do a study on the effects of fentanyl <laughs> smoke on its public and its own workers. I mean, instead of like what, just putting a stop to fentanyl smoking on TriMet? Yeah, smoking's not allowed. <laughs> Let's just find out if it's harmful. Is this how far we have to devolve? Yeah. So do you remember this meeting? Yeah, so yeah, oh, yeah. that was just last last month. Yeah. 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 It wasn't this month, it was last month. Yeah, a month ago. Yeah, and were people ago. just blown away by this? I mean, I, I guess it doesn't surprise anybody anymore, I does it? I don't think it does, no. No, I wouldn't say that Shock described it. No. I, I have, honestly, I think people are more interested in the fact that he said that he was going to do something about the the large encampment by the Flavelle Cul-de-sac. Cul-de-sac, Max, Max platform. Oh, TriMet has decided to do something about that encampment? And they but, haven't done but, anything. <laughs> you know, we're six weeks later and nothing has happened that we can see. I just emailed him yesterday and he's on a vacation. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so we'll see. But I do think that as far as city, county, and metro government are concerned, just the idea that somebody, that a city, county, metro official would speak into a mic and say, we're going to do something about this. Homeless encampment is probably a big deal, even if nothing ever gets done. I mean, yeah. we're kind of at a point now where it's like just the rhetoric is, yeah. we're, we're so hungry for any kind of common sense to come out of somebody's mouth that... And that's what I'm saying. A lot of people just want to be heard. They just want somebody in an official capacity to hear them. 
even though they don't they don't think I don't think they think anything's going to be done. They're hopeful. They're hopeful. Always hopeful. <laughs> it, it is refreshing for the citizen citizenry to meet with an official from the city, county, whoever, and, and be able to talk to them because we know you can't telephone them because it goes to voicemail and nobody responds. And sometimes the the messengers are very low on the totem pole, and I feel sorry for them because they they bear the brunt of the public's the Lentz public's frustration with the with the state of Lentz. Well, I think we're all tired of. I mean, Lentz in particular, for Pete's sake, you all have been through it, but. I also think just the constituency in general is tired of officials reading to us from pieces of paper and not answering what I think are just basic questions about functionality and livability in this city. And I'm sure Lentz has certainly had enough of, had enough of that. <laughs> we have. Did you hear? So when you lived there, you you weren't you didn't move out that long ago. When you were in Lentz, about how many nights? Would you, a week, let's say, would you say you heard gunshots? We didn't. You we didn't. didn't? No. Okay, because I, I hear what, from Lentz residents who say they hear it every night. They live down below us. I see. And it's down in those areas where the gunshot, the only thing we would hear is the street racers, which were coming up Nap, the back hill, and doing their little donut thing. But that's about all I ever heard. But as far as the gunshot, you wouldn't have heard it up where we lived. So the really bad stuff in Lentz is happening where exactly? 92nd, all the way to Powell, over in Montevilla neighborhood, all the way out to 148th or towards Gresham. Mm -hmm. Anywhere between there, so between Slaveville, 92nd. I'd say almost all of Lentz except for the the portion that's on Mount Scott. Because, you know, 82nd to 92nd is there's a lot of... Gunshot. And I think 82nd for sure. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I get a lot of reports from listeners who live near there. Yeah. I got one in August about the, there was an officer involved shooting in Lentz, and, I, and a listener sent me a uh, news release about about it, and it was uh, 80, 8200 block of Southeast Lambert Street. So the gun was pointed, and then in response, officers fired their weapons, and there was a I don't know if you saw the post. There were a couple of posts on our page where the campers are now aiming rifles at people driving by. This happened to our ex-neighbor, and then I saw another post that happened the same thing, but it was further, further north, that they're driving by these homeless camps, and rifles are being aimed at their cars as they're driving by. So the people in the tents are yes. aiming yes. rifles yes. at cars? Yes. Because someone put it on our page, and then this other person popped up. Oh, that just happened to me the other day, too. What? Yeah, when did this become normal? So what else do you do? You all, David and Char, want people to know about yourselves, about the LNLA? Any other information that you want to share with us? Come to a meeting. Come and get to know us. Instead of going out there to the Mercury or the Willamette Week or whatever newspaper you love to read or Twitter or Snapchat or whoever, I am tired of seeing reviews on our page about how we're this, how we're that, and I've never even seen you at a meeting. Come to our meetings, second Thursday of every month, 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. Come to our cleanups. We're having a cleanup on September 24th to clean up NAP. 
with the guardian angels, come to that. Just come out and meet us. We're, we're easy to get a hold of. Call us. Give us a call. Send us an email. Do any of these people that are so critical of the LNLA actually show up at your meetings? No. No. That's the whole point. That's the odd have, thing. They not have an opinion, but they know nothing about us. I wonder why. Why do you think that? Are they scared? Are, are, are they, is it just easier to lay out vitriol online? I think it is. I think it threatens their point of view. I don't know any other reason. Right. If you were humans doing good things, like remodeling a neighbor's right. house, it would be that much more difficult for them to dedicate their days. Uh, it would be more difficult for them to dedicate their days to trashing you on Twitter or co-opting your surveys or etc. Yeah, I think so. No, we're here to help people. Like I said, I've gotten calls. I can't remember the other city, but I've gotten calls from all different neighborhoods, different towns that that need that need help, and they don't know who to reach out to because no one answers their phone. And so they call you, and you're able to direct them. And to... I direct them to services. No, the woman that was in the other city, I actually looked up her city, looked up their chamber of commerce, found a list of people who could help her with her her mobile home getting the repairs done because they were going to kick her out of the park. And I sent her the list. But, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's yeah. And, and I don't know why they feel that, that they're neat. I, I really think it threatens. Somehow it threatens them. I can't understand any other reason why they would do that, why they feel they need to pick on somebody doing something that they're not doing or don't believe the way they believe. or It's the right and left thing. It's like... <laughs> We've been labeled as Republicans. David's a Democrat. I'm an independent, but we've been labeled as Republicans because of stuff that gets put on our page. It's like, they just like labeling people. And if and, they don't and, agree with you, the name call. Yeah, and the truth is our, our, our page is dedicated to free speech. But we don't, the only, really the only rule is that we'd like you to keep on topic with things that affect Lent and not to personally attack other people. Pretty simple. So if, if a Stop the Sweeps person were to write something on there like, please don't remove this homeless encampment, that's not something that you're gonna remove from the page. Nope. Nope. Or I don't believe in sweeps, or sweeps kill, that's nope. not something you're gonna remove from the page. Nope. Nope. That's their opinion. The, the thing that they have to be willing to face is that there are going to be responses to that on the page and that they probably don't want to hear it. That's my guess. What, what else should people know about both of you or the LNLA that maybe people don't know or, or information that you want to get out? We're old and we're going to die soon. Some young people ought to join the group to carry on the work that we've started. <laughs> so we'll, we're going to put in a link to your page, and people can do, not only donate money, they can um, engage. They can engage in volunteer participation, right? Is there like an email list or something that goes out so people are aware? I, of, I do have an email list. No, I, I yes, I have a very, it's like 300 people. That's great. On the email list. So you can get on Char's email list, and then you can find out when the events are, and you can participate. And I send out mail chips. Um, I try to send out one early in the month to say of all the things we're doing that month, and then I send out a reminder of the meetings, and if we're having like a special cleanup, like we're having this one on September 24th, I'll probably make a mail chip for that, just to make it more colorful and grab people's attention. Okay. 
Any, anything else? We've said it all. I think, I think we've so. said it all. <laughs> <laughs> Cover all our bases. Thanks for coming in, David and Shar from the Lentz Neighborhood Livability Association, the LNLA, and we'll put a link to your organization's website on our show notes so everybody can go and donate and and get on the YouTube page, watch the meetings, come to the meetings, get on Char's email list, and come to the next event. Thanks Thank again, you for guys. having us. Thank you.